power on. Hey, now, what's a big deal? I can't see the difference between that and this anyway. You don't see the difference? The difference is that I grew it. That's what the difference is. That I picked it and I fixed it. And it has a taste and it has some color. And it has a smell. And that it calls back a time when there were flowers all over the earth. And there were valleys. And there were plains of tall green grass that you could lie down in, that you could go to sleep in. And there were blue skies, and there was fresh air, and there were things growing all over the place, not just in some domed enclosures blasted some millions of miles out into space. Look at that stuff. How can you guys sit there and really say anything to me about this? <laughs> Look at this crap. Look at that. Dried synthetic crap. And you've become so dependent on it that I bet you can't even live without it. What do we want, Olo? Don't you realize how pitiful that is, what you just asked me? On Earth, everywhere you go, the temperature is 75 degrees. Everything is the same. All the people are exactly the same. Now, what kind of life is that? Well, if it's so rotten, why do you want to go back? Because it's not too late to change it. <laughs> what do you want, Lowell? I mean, there's hardly any more disease, there's no more poverty. Nobody's out of a job. That's right. Every time we have the argument, you say the same thing to me, you give me the same three answers all the time, the same thing, well, everybody has a job, that's always the last one. But you know what else there is no more of, my friend? There is no more beauty, and there's no more imagination, and there are no frontiers left to conquer. And you know why? Only one reason why. One reason why the same attitude that you three guys are giving me right here in this room today. And that is, nobody cares. Accessing historical database. Year 2020. The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open source revolt against the military Silicon Valley industrial complex. The podcast, Sovereign Tech. Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. The tech giants try to stop Sovereign Tech. They can't. Woo! You are getting the absolute best in professional podcasting, baby. And that means you are being joined by the Golden Stallion, the Man of Tomorrow, Savzu, the Rated R Radio Star. But I, as I love to get to say, am not alone. I am being joined by none other than the real-life Tomb Raider. The, <laughs> <laughs> the amazing, the brilliant, the beautiful Ellen Sovereign. That's right. It's <laughs> uh, been a... When were you on last? A month? Two it's months ago? been a month at least, yeah. Our schedules are nuts. Right. Um, I mean, you finally had a little bit of a break. Over Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving vacation. Yeah. It's yeah. been wonderful. 
But now, so you were going to, uh, to university, I don't know what, two, three days a week. Right. For a little while now. And you're finishing up. I mean, you're finishing up. This we're you know, giving people a little bit of an update, but interestingly, so the university you're going to here in New Hampshire, they are closed now for like, or not closed, but you will not be going to university. Like you're going to do everything remotely now. Have I got that right? Right. Essentially all non-essential personnel are going to be doing things remotely. So yeah, I'm not going to be traveling at all. I'll be home. I think you're essential, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'm just one of the student populace, though. So, yeah, 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 we're all being sent home for the remainder of the semester, which is only about four or five weeks. So that's not bad. Yeah. uh, And then I'll literally be finished. Frankly, I I think you're getting out right on time. You know, (laughs) I would have preferred to have gotten out sooner. But yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I've seen enough chaos and I'm ready to go. Do you think let me ask you this. So you're getting uh, your, your degree is going to be in, uh, so I'm going to have a bachelor's of science in chemical engineering with a bioengineering option. Right. Okay. Do you, I forget where I've heard these kinds of terms. Some of them, I do know where I've heard them, but do you think that people are going to call for you? I don't think it's going to be the case because you've only had to deal with this for about a half year or like, you know, basically a semester. But do you think, uh, there's going to be a term going around called COVID degrees? You know, I've heard other students say this and okay. make jokes about it. Okay. Uh, possibly. I think for, for people who are maybe freshmen or sophomore now, mm-hmm. who are just starting to get into the real core of their education. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there there's going to be, you know, this um, maybe this, this sort of like predisposition uh, within like the realm of employers and whatnot that are hiring these people that graduate within mm-hmm. the next year or two. Um you know, saying something like, oh, these people have the COVID degrees, so they haven't gone through the rigorous study that other students might have. Because for people who are in the the science fields who mm-hmm. need to use the, the, lab. the laboratories that are on campus right, uh, to do research or even for their regular everyday classwork, they're not going to get that experience. Uh, and And since I've experienced that, I know how integral those can be to what they're trying to teach you. I mean, you really don't get the same experience. It's not hands-on. No, you don't get the same knowledge and expertise if you're just learning this from reading about it. Yeah, I think we might have talked about this a little bit in previous episodes that you were on. I remember last semester, basically, your uh, professor had to do had to run all the labs for you, right? Yeah, and yeah. You actually, talked about it over Zoom. There were a couple classes where that happened where... Uh-huh. I would either watch the professor perform an experiment in the lab or they would just send me the data and I'd have to write reports on it. Right. Yeah. Well, again, I think it just bolsters. I think you're getting out right on time. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I, I would not want to go through this for another semester. I mean, especially considering while I was doing the in-person classes, right. every everybody had to turn in uh, these nasal COVID tests twice a week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember you were going mm-hmm. in uh, even on days that you normally didn't go to university. You were taking in the test, right? Uh, yeah, that's and that was just an additional drive. It was kind of annoying, but sure. Um, I, on the one hand, it was it was kind of neat, and I appreciated the experience. Uh, and also, you know, if if you got it or if I got it, we would know within a few days. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, in in a weird way, <laughs> uh, 
you're getting tested was almost like me getting tested. Exactly. Because <laughs> 99% of the time, I mean, we're just all over each other. There, there's no way one of us isn't getting what the other's got. Well, we're within six feet of each other at all times. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, at least when we're sitting at our desk, uh, we're within six feet of each other. That's true. That's true. But I mean, that's, you know, a whole other story when, you know, the horizontal polka or anything else is going on. But the wait, hunk wait, of chunka? The hunk of chunka, the wild mambo. <laughs> that's pretty good to do a little little demolition uh, demolition man reference there for you of course uh if you listen recently i did an episode where i reviewed the uh amazon halo band and uh, well you get to hear all about that and i referenced demolition man once again over and over so anyway nice little get a chance to plug that little episode if nobody caught that bonus well worth listening you had to put up with me wearing that amazon halo band uh, and dealing with me in real time wearing this damn thing. Boy, did I. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's ridiculous. I, I, how about you? Right, let me ask you this. I mean, we've got, we've got some tech stories to get into. We've got a great, actually, really, and we didn't plan on this necessarily, but this whole, it's been, it almost feels like synchronicity going on. There's a lot of stories that coalesced and came together and are going to create an overarching theme throughout this entire episode that we're going to do, Ellen. Um, but I mean, how do you feel about because this will play into our, our one little story for the foreplay. How do you feel about, you know, these, these fitness trackers? Did you ever wear one? Did you ever deal with these things? Admittedly, I've never worn a fitness tracker. Uh And part of the reason is that I have kind of always known what level of physical activity I need to do in order for me to feel physically fit. Sure. And that's just because over the years I've practiced and trained and I know uh, what my body needs and I know what I need to do in order to feel healthy and in shape. And I've just never seen the benefit of having a fitness tracker. I mean, I never did the sort of exercise that just involves a number of steps or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, well, you were you did run cross country. Yes. I mean, you yeah. were you, you're a fit individual. I mean, just, just straight Thank up. You. Yeah. You know, yeah, you I mean, have been ever yeah. since I was like 12 or 13 years old, I've been running cross country, right. which was like five miles a day or three miles a day, depending mm-hmm. on the day. Um, and the, I just carried on that, that practice throughout my life. Even after I graduated high school, even after I moved to New Hampshire, mm-hmm. um, all the way up until pretty much like two years ago, you and I started weightlifting together. Right. Uh, but yeah, I, I've always been a fit person and I'm very aware of my body and what state or what level of fitness I'm at. So, uh, yeah, I just never felt the need for a fitness tracker. Sure. Um, and, and besides that, like I would track my fitness the old fashioned way. Like I, I used to keep journals where I'd write down like how far I ran Absolutely. and how long it took. Um, so, yeah, I guess I just prefer... The, the low-tech method of, of tracking fitness as opposed to, like, using a wristband or something. Yeah, or, well, what I would say is really the best way, much like you're saying, just listen to your body, you know. And, yeah. yes, it takes time to learn to listen to your body, but do it. And I know it's twice as hard today because we're constantly distracted either by a fitness tracker itself uh, or by that other tracking device. Um, what do they call them? Smartphones. <laughs> Uh, that, <laughs> that are consistently distracting us. Um, but yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's good to know. I mean, certainly I know you've heard me say these sorts of things as well. Sure. Um, I just feel like that's not data that I need to keep on a, an electronic device. And also if I can do it 
the low tech way, why do I need to spend money on a fitness tracker? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, uh, another thing, this is just personal preference. I don't really like wearing jewelry and stuff. I mean, I do occasionally, but Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to wear something around my wrist every day, all the time. Right. Right. Uh, To me, that just seems annoying, but I know not everyone's like that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, why don't we go ahead and we're, we're going to get into, I know a lot of people love when we do a little Sovereign Tech book club, and it's something <laughs> I generally only do when you're on, um, and we talk about what we've been reading lately. But before we get into that, uh, and this is, so, I mean, part of the reason I want to ask you about the fitness tracker is because, now, obviously, you're brilliant. Um, <laughs> obviously. And, well, I think it's obvious. <laughs> and, and plenty of Sovereign Tech listeners have, have shared their opinions as well. Um, obviously, you're brilliant. But- you're, when it comes to tech or when it comes to like a lot of more consumer technologies or a lot of these other things, um, you know, it, it's not you know, like you don't have this deep passion where you need to use the latest, latest gizmo or gadget. Oh, no, not right. at all. That's my point. And so asking you about a fitness tracker is far different than, or, you know, your opinion about them is far. It's not different, but it's getting a possible different perspective because, I have been historically the kind of person who's always about, give me the latest update, give me the latest gadget, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I'm not the latest gadget kind of guy anymore. Now I'm more about, no, give me the tried and true uh, device, whatever that happens to be. But uh, but that's why I like to get your perspective on things. And so um, I want to open up here, even though we've already opened up, but I want to open up with a, with a story that when this hit, now I shared it on Twitter and said, wow. This is the right move. Normally, I don't give a company like Google the time of day or credit, you know, to say, wow, that's the right moves. Um, But I think they did something that is, is, I have questions and I might have a critique or two, but I think it's worthwhile to bring up and talk about. And I really do want your perspective, Ellen, because again, you, you know, you're not the one who wants to try 20 million apps. And so I don't want to call it. I would, I would never insult you by calling you normal. Uh, just that, <laughs> that you might have more, more of the layman's perspective, I guess on, on, on this side of things. Sure. If you mean I'm not a tech journalist. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Exactly. And it's good for, I mean, because me, you know, as a tech journalist, I can get stuck in my own ass and you know, you, you're right there with your, you know, in fact, very impressive triceps ready to just pull my ass or pull my head right out of my ass. Uh, oh, so I appreciate that. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, let's talk about it. So a couple of years ago, uh, Google implemented into Android messages, uh, which is the SMS uh, app for, you know, basically it's the text messaging, text messaging app for all Android devices, or it did become the standard anyway. There was a time where actually, you know, there, there were a bunch of different text messaging apps, but then Google basically standardized it and people ran with it. They also standardized a new protocol cart called, called, we just got done eating folks <laughs> and watching Star Trek, the next generation, which by the way, later on, we, I did, did, have we, have you been on since we finished Babylon five? I don't think so. We got to have a little bit of a conversation about that. We will. We got to. Okay. All right. We got some other reviews we're going to get into, but anyway, we'll save it. So anyway, uh, what they called RCS, which is a protocol somewhat separate from SMS. And I think it just means rich chat services or something like that. But basically it was trying to add to SMS or to SMS clients, the ability to do read receipts, 
typing notifications, you know, all kinds of different things. And overall, it's a fine thing because SMS, while it is a standard and there's a reason it's still heavily, heavily, heavily used throughout the planet, um, you know, it's okay to like, let's evolve this a little bit. And they have been working on that. They started it about two years ago. Earlier, I think it was this year, they basically forced all Android messages apps, which is, you know, again, it's just the app that's called messages. Uh, to use our, to start using RCS because the, the, the telcos were taking too long. Verizon was taking too long implementing it. Nobody else is implementing it. So Google just said, well, we're just going to turn it on and we control the operating system. So fuck you, <laughs> which you know, good. <laughs> they can. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, anything that, that really fucks with uh, the telcos I'm, I'm kind of on board with, even though I would say Google is at parity as far as, uh, you know, uh, maliciousness, but regardless, um, they did this and it was back in May, I think of this year where there were some hints in a recent APK, uh, the code basically for messages where it, it had suggested that they were going to start implementing end to end encryption. Well, come this time, uh, you know, of 2020, we're in the end of November here of 2020, uh, Google has confirmed that yes, we are going to put end to end encryption, uh, in Android messages, you know, so basically your text messages from here on out once it, I mean, it, it's going to be a slow rollout. It's only available in beta right now, but they will be end to end encrypted. Not only that it's end to end encryption being done using the signal protocol, which is fine. You know, have arguments all you want around phone numbers getting used. And we need to talk about that, but have arguments all you want around any issues with, uh, some app choices, perhaps that signal has made in the past year. And I understand where people are coming from when they have concerns around that, but the signal protocol itself is pretty solid encryption math. Uh, and so it's a good choice to use and not that Google's, you know, not used to it. They used it with Allo as well. One of their previous, uh, uh, you know, messaging apps. So now they made it clear that this doesn't work with group messaging. Um, so it only works when you're using it one-to-one. But I'll say at first blush, this is fantastic. This is, this is great because this is an app that comes stock with every smart, every Android smartphone that you buy and for it to automatically have, you know, gold standard encryption baked in and on, and it should be on by default. I assume it's going to be, we'll see, uh, is just a win for everybody. You know, I mean, that fucks with the telcos. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, I think a fantastic thing. Now I have a couple of possible critiques around this. Um, but I want to ask you on this, Ellen. So we normally use, we, we use signal years ago. We used to use signal quite a bit. Then we switched over to telegram. Um, and we use that. I mean, how do you feel about this announcement? How do you feel about, are you going to use text messaging more? Are you more inclined to use it now that it's going to be end-to-end encrypted? Uh, I mean, give me some thoughts on this. So my first thought is, uh, yeah, it's great that they're finally using uh, that encryption, Mm -hmm. the the signals encryption. Um, From what I understand, it only works if both parties have... um, the, the Android messages. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, and to bring up quick, like that's a lot of people are criticizing Apple because I mean, now Apple does this with iMessages, which is their version or iMessage, which is their version of SMS and messages and everything. Um, but Apple, you know, they could play ball with this 
and make iMessage inter, you know, interact with, um, RCS as a universal standard and they're not. And that's kind of bullshit. People are rightly calling them out about it, but anyway, please continue. Yeah. So both sides have to have it. Yeah. And also it's interesting that Google says that they're willing to work with any other company if they want to start implementing this or whatever. And to me, that kind of sounds like they're scared of being chased for antitrust laws or something like that. Oh, yeah. Um, which, you know, that's that's fine, too. I mean, it's great that they're welcoming uh, some sort of like, you know, co- cooperative working with other companies. Sure. I mean, I would love it. And I'll tell you, here's a real possible game changer is that if like your dumb phones, you know, your burner phones that aren't Android or, or iOS, um, if those start to use RCS as a standard and they have the end to end encryption turned on, I mean, fuck if a burner, if, if a, you know, if a dumb phone becomes basically enabled with signal, uh, that makes the dumb phone all the more attractive again, Sure, you know, absolutely. Uh, but continue please. So anyway, as far as, uh, will this make me use SMS more often than I already do? Mm-hmm. And the answer is simply no, because, uh, not that I don't trust the encryption. Mm-hmm. Of course I do. I mean, I, I've used Signal mm-hmm. plenty of times. Um, it's just that I only speak to certain people through SMS. Yeah. Uh, and those conversations are not particularly sensitive. Right. Uh, those kinds of conversations I do use like Telegram or Signal with mm-hmm. or for. Um, and, and that's just because I trust them. Sure. Right. So maybe, you know, over time, if it is proven that the encryption on SMS text uh, is really solid and there's no, I don't know, like nothing nefarious on Google's part, Mm -hmm. then, you know, maybe I would stop being so concerned and use SMS more often. But there's just it's not really something that I need um, because I'm one of those people that has a bunch of different chat and text uh, message apps on my phone right just because everybody seems to use something different yeah yeah so i i think this is uh i mean let, let, let's talk about this a little bit i mean one of the major disadvantages here say over even signal or telegram is that this does not do encryption over group messages at least not yet mm-hmm. and that does not make it a replacement for signal telegram um you know, threema go down the list of them okay um i do have one of the issues that a lot of people bring up with signal is that they don't like that. I mean, just to talk about some of my concerns with this, even though I think it's ultimately a good thing. I mean, because one, you know, actually one quick aspect, that's a good thing is this is one less app that people have to install. You know, if we could get to a future, perhaps where you don't have to install any other messaging apps because the encryption and everything, and the experience is so well done with the Android messages. Hey, okay. You, You know, I could see that as a win. However, one of the critiques that has constantly been made against, and really Telegram needs this too, but that has been particularly made against Signal, is that you need to have the other person's phone number. Um, This, I think, can be, with Signal, it's a real issue. With Telegram, not so much. You do need a phone number for Telegram to verify the account, but not to communicate with other people. As to where with Signal, you do. With Telegram, you can change your phone number at any time and keep the same account. That's not exactly possible signal, even though I think they're trying to, to go that distance, to go that direction. But then I think you lose the specialness of what signal is when you do that. 
the fact that it is something where all of your client side information just instantly disappears. That's I think that's a good thing. That's like, a, a you know, one of the purposes for still using signal is that that's how it can work, that there are effectively no backups. It is not going to some server somewhere or anything like that. There is no file to crack, but regardless, um, I feel like, well, okay. We are as a, as a society, and I want to use that term particularly, not as a species, but as a society, as a society, we're very comfortable. We don't really know what it's like to have our lives really upended. I mean, we can have sad things happen. People die, stuff like this. I mean, you know, that that's really traumatic and horrible. I'm not going to say anything different, but we don't know what it's like to suddenly have to be on the run. A lot of us don't know what it's like to, you know, uh, you might be a target, like as in a target where someone is coming after you to, to harm you or kill you or something like that. I mean, there's some of us that have to do with that. People go into witness protection, things like this. My point being is that in the world that we live in, as it is today, which is not exactly conducive to human growth. Uh, <laughs> if it were whistleblowers wouldn't have to run away. Right. Right. I, I think you can see where I'm going with this is that your phone number, like as great as this is, this is not what would become my de facto, my stock way of communicating with people because I would never rely on my phone number to be the way that other people get in touch with me on matters that would even necessarily require end-to-end -end encryption. I mean, end-to-end -end encryption should be the standard anyway. But my point being is that you never know when, you know what, you might have to change your phone number tomorrow for whatever terrible reason, or even if it's just on a whim. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And, and so to have all of that, I mean, I guess there's an argument to be made where, because, and, and these are where a lot of questions come in. Why is Google doing this? Okay. Also, uh, if you're a Google one subscriber, Google will back up to your, to your Google drive. They will back up all of your SMS messages. Is it backing up an encrypted store of what you have client side? What does that look like? Um, why is good again? Why is Google doing this in the first place? In my opinion, they are losing a lot of data and metadata to other companies that run messaging clients and they just can't have that. And so even though they're not going to make a dime off of necessarily off of advertising with this, they can't let other companies get this data that comes from, you know, messaging apps. And so they're going with a scorched earth policy. They're like, fine, we'll just, you know, we'll make your messaging apps effectively pointless. Now they, I mean, they haven't for people with the right mindset, but for the everyday person, yeah, I think that's effectively what they're going to do. Um, and again, having that end-to-end -end encryption, I, I applaud overall. Uh, the other part here is that, and this is similar to what they did with Allo, they want Google Assistant integration. And so I, even though it's going to be end-to-end -end encrypted, I still think that there's a lot of interaction, a lot of data that Google's going to be able to collect if people start using Android messages more. Um, and they, I mean, they've had to see Signal growing in use, Telegram growing in use, and they just, they cannot allow other companies to, you know, to you know, sweep up all that data, uh, from them. So anyway, I, as good as this is for me, it also could never become a standard because again, you never know when just one day your phone number has got to change and all of that goes away, you know? And, and if it is going to 
send a, uh, a backup to Google drive. And then that way it's like, it's attached to my Google email address, my Gmail address, instead of, um, just my phone number. I'm not comfortable with that. Like that, that, that I don't feel good about that part. So yeah, this is a good thing ultimately, and they're doing it right. But well, tell me how you feel about this. Alan. When, when you're an individualist, okay. And when you don't trust governments, when I am, and you are, (laughs) (laughs) yes. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Do you feel I, well here, I feel you should live your life like a spy because effectively, if you're, you know, if you're not yay team who, of whoever claims to be running the show, i.e. the government, um, not that you have to be violent by any means. And of course I know you wouldn't, nor would I, uh, but I mean, I, I really, I think you should have like the mindset of a spy because, you know, if you're not paying fealty to the state in many ways, you're kind of an enemy to it. And that by definition makes you a spy. Even if you're not for work for another country, you're a spy for yourself, for the individual that you are. Oh, you're gathering intel for your own use. Sure. Sure. <laughs> or, you know, you're, yeah. Or, or you're doing what you can to, you know, protect yourself from say the, whatever, you know, the enemy occupancy or the occupancy around you. Um, so, you know, you're, that, that's the way I often think about it. And I go through life more or less accordingly. Um, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Uh, being an individualist and somebody who does not support the government, mm-hmm. I try to live my life as much as possible outside of the power structure mm-hmm. uh, and use whatever tools are available in order to do that. Right. Um, and any time that I'm unable to escape it, uh, you know, that doesn't feel very good. So I, I agree, like live your life as much as possible outside of the control of the government or corporations or whatever organization is trying to gather your data and feed you information based on the metadata that is gathered. And, uh, you know, just like trying to stay outside of the system and not turn into a, either like a, a, a product yourself right, or somebody to be used and controlled. Yeah, this is why, I mean, we have a sovereign tech axiom, which is any and all data can that you produce can and will be used against you. Uh, and that comes from this mindset of, yeah, I, I, you know, I think you're effectively a spy, you know, actually, hell, I mean, right now we're in a, in the United States, we're in a country, you know, this, this is so funny because I've said this for years, quoting like the works of Gene Sharp uh, and, and, and some others that the idea that just because an organization claims to be the dominant force within a geographic area does not mean that they are actually like the governing force in your life mm-hmm. right now. America's dealing with that because you got a guy who just won't play musical chairs like he's supposed to and get out of the chair when the music stopped playing for him. Right. Uh, you know, and, and, and you have, well, Biden, who who claims to be the president, and there's, I don't know, how, whatever percentage of the amount of the country says that he's president. There is a whole other very real people who claim, no, he's not president. The other guy is. Mm-hmm. And so you actually live in a geographic territory right now. Even though I know Biden doesn't get sworn in until January, he's president-elect. You're in a territory right now that considers that up to debate. 
You live in a country that is basically operating under two governments. You live in a geographic location that is operating under two governments. People have told me for years that that's not possible. No, you're living in it right now, motherfucker. I mean, and, and, but, but again, people just don't have the mindset. They don't understand that that's how this works. Thing is, is that if you choose to follow none of these asshats, as you should, you know, who are you working for? Well, you're working for you. And again, it comes back to that. Basically, you know, you're, you're your own James Bond, you know, you're, you're, right. you're your own spy <laughs> right. uh, for yourself. And, you know, if you have any country, maybe it's your computer in our interconnected world. But um, yeah, and you have to find ways to outsmart the establishment. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And go undercover. And, you know, if, and if you're like living some kind of double life, well, we've got movies for you that you can watch and learn how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah. So, OK, so coming from a more layman's position, this Google's uh, I mean, while I think you would agree also that it's the right way to do it. Um, it's using, a positive change. Yeah, right. More encryption is always a positive change. Yes. Uh, but Android messages is not going to increase in use for you. Not for me, no. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I could see there would be times possibly where I'd feel more comfortable using SMS than right. I have been in the past. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a whole other slew of conversations. Again, how does it interact with iPhone? You know, I mean, like the, these are a whole other things that, that are worth exploring. But from the more tech journalist and, and gizmo uh, head aspect, um, I'm with you. I'm not going to end up using this more by any means. I might feel a little more comfortable using it, but it's not going to entice me uh, to to use it as like my daily driver. Yeah, no. <laughs> right, right. Fair enough. So, all right. We got that out of the way. We're living our lives like spies. And I have to say, you are the sexiest double agent I've ever seen. And no. <laughs> oh, Agent Sovereign. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Uh, Dr. Goldblast. I mean, uh, <clears throat> excuse you me. You flatterer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got to make it in this world somehow. No. <laughs> <laughs> you are a sovereign agent. Uh, mm-hmm. Um <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of sovereign, why don't we get into the sovereign tech book club uh, yeah. as we do, as is our tradition. Um, do you want to open this up or do you want me to? Um, I, I guess I'll open it up. Okay. All right. If, if you want to, well, let me, let me see here. So, cause I think I know what book you're going to talk about. Um, yeah, let's have you open this baby up and then, uh, because mine will actually play off of what you are talking about. So, okay. Go for it. What have you been reading lately? So last time I was on, I was reading a book called Women Don't Ask. Oh, yeah. Linda Babcock. Yep. And I finished that recently. Uh, I had got some really great takeaways from it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some things that uh, genuinely, I feel like, benefited me in a a real way, Mm -hmm. Uh, or at least they will in the future, as long as I can implement them properly. Uh, and it was also kind of inspirational to find out that the world is starting to recognize more and more that the way that uh, women negotiate is far more equitable and fair uh, and inclusive than the way that men have traditionally negotiated. Right. And, um, you know, it, it's just fascinating learning about like the fixed pie fallacy. Uh, Explain this to me. Which is this idea, uh, traditionally in in like male-led negotiating, there's this idea that um, I'm going into a negotiation and if I don't get what I want, then, you know, the majority of the pie is going to the other person. Mm -hmm. So I need to get my share of the pie. 
And that's all it will ever be is either I get the most of the pie or you get the most of the pie. So this is the concept of the, the zero sum game. Kind of. Yeah. 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 It's like either I win or you win. But yeah. Both of us cannot win. Right. Which is that's a fallacy. Absolutely. That's yeah. Like the fixed pie fallacy. That's what right. it is. Um, so when women negotiate, that kind of goes out the window because women come at negotiation from a perspective of how can we both benefit? Uh, and in the negotiating realm, that kind of increases the size of the pie. Mm-hmm. So like you both can get what you want in a mutually beneficial way. Right. So, and to be clear, this book was recommended to you just to give people some context. This book was recommended to you by a man yes, who holds a fairly high position in a fairly major materials company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, major. And so, I mean, just for perspective, you know, that, that this, <laughs> right. this wasn't, uh, the, you know, you didn't get this at college. There was, I mean, you, you know, cause I think some of the, some people would want to start banting out. Oh, you heard that there, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. No, he was no. my supervisor. <laughs> he's been trained in management and he's giving me this book about management right. for females. Right. Right. Yeah. I, well, I, also for males. I mean, men can listen to this book and get something and out get of perspective. it. Get perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, yeah. So, okay. So you finished that great book. Yeah, it was a wonderful book, and I'm very glad that I read it, and I'm going to have to tell him thank you at some point. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, But after I finished that book, I moved on to uh, the book that I'm reading now, which is uh, is written by Zechariah Sitchin. Woo! (laughs) Keep talking. (laughs) I know, the ancient alien theorists out there, their ears are tingling right now. (laughs) Uh, The Lost Book of Enki is Mm -hmm. what I'm reading. So the full title here. Is the Lost Book of Enki, Memoirs and Prophecies of an Extraterrestrial God. Uh, and it's from 2001 by Zachariah Sitchin. So I will, of course, let you talk about the book. But just quickly, uh, this is a book I'm very familiar with. We have been talking about it back and forth, you and I. Um, I was honored to have a friendship with Zachariah Sitchin, uh, basically up until the day he died. And actually, now it's, we just, just a couple weeks ago would have celebrated the 10th anniversary of his passing um because he died in, in october of 2010 and anyway uh, i've talked about that before but um yeah this is this is a hell of a book uh and well anyway why don't you go ahead if you want to tell a little bit about the story and i can give a little more overview but go, but go ahead okay sure um so essentially this book is about the anunnaki mm-hmm. who come from the planet nibiru and they travel to, well, uh, there, there's a lot of story in here. I'm just giving the highlights. But right. essentially, they travel to Earth. Uh, they start mining gold for their atmosphere, which they, they need to repair their atmosphere mm-hmm. so that they can continue to survive. Um, but the work is really hard on Earth. So yep. eventually what they do is they take primates that already exist on earth mm-hmm. and genetically modify them so that they're the perfect workers to right. gather gold for them. Um, and over time they end up becoming involved more and more with humans. They interbreed with them. They uh, help them to develop civilization uh, and are worshiped like gods. Right. Yeah. Basically if you've ever seen like the fourth, the, the fourth or fifth return of the apes movies, uh, or I mean, Planet of the Apes movies. This is Planet of the Apes, but it's humans, you know, where where they're made as a slave species, right? 
and and the, well, perhaps a rebellion occurs or something like that. Um, this is a book that is a and, and is a great one for you to read because you have you ever read any of Zachariah Sitchin's other works? No, this is the first one, and I know you said that I should have read the Twelfth Planet first. Or yeah, that's would it you, be now the Tenth Planet? No, <laughs> be the Eleventh. Eleventh. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so Sitchin's really well known for the book, the 12th planet. So the, the reason that I said that, I mean, to understand lost book of Enki is basically a fictional it's, it reads, would you say it reads like uh, a biblical Testament? It does sound like ancient writings, right? Like the old Testament or new Testament, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. So it's a fictionalized testamentized, if I can use that word version of all of Zachary or a lot of Zachariah Sitchin's research. And so it's kind of a quick, fun way for you to get the story that Zachariah Sitchin has been trying to tell people ever since late 60s, early 70s, when he first put out his book, uh, The 12th Planet, which was a wild bestseller around the same time Eric Von Daniken was doing Chariots of the Gods and so on. Um, The 12th Planet is great because it is, as to where this is, it's, I mean, Sitchin would say it's not fiction, but it's fiction. It's a fictionalization anyway. It's a dramatization. Dramatization. Yeah, sure. Um, The 12th planet is as hardcore in archaeological text with evidence, you know, just like bleeding out of your nose and ears um, as you can get. I mean, and so that's why I often recommend people read that first, because merely not because it tells the story better. I think the Lost Book of Enki does a great job of telling the story. It's because it gets you to take Sitchin a little more seriously than you would otherwise. Um, not that I think Sitchin is a hundred percent right on anything. And I certainly am not a proponent of the ancient alien theory or ancient astronaut hypothesis or whatever term you want to use. But um, he raises points that need answers and archeologists have to provide answers. They have to provide complete answers to what they find. They are not allowed to let mysteries just sit and they never have. Um, and they don't, you know, and, and sometimes that leads to very problematic conclusions. But bottom line being is that, um, there are things that Sitchin brings up. Sitchin does try to provide an answer, but modern archeology span basically tries to ignore or, or call a fake or pretend doesn't happen. Um, this book, reading it, I mean, are you convinced of, uh, of what Sitchin's selling here? I mean, you know, do you think the Anunnaki, <laughs> these ancient gods came back, whatever, or, you know, came to earth thousands of years ago, genetically altered humans? What do you got? Well, you know me, I'm, I'm really skeptical about these things. <laughs> I'll say. To say the least. Yeah. Uh, so I think the theory that he puts forth is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of ways in which his story fits in with other you know, theological texts or historical texts. Sure. Um, it, mythology that has existed for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I really enjoy it. I, I think that the way that he describes it sounds very consistent and it, it ties everything together. There's, you know, there's a line that you can draw from Nibiru all the way to, you know, humans evolving into civilized beings. Right, right. Uh, so I, I find that really interesting and I am enjoying, uh, listening to his perspective, mm-hmm. but 
I, d- I wouldn't say that I'm convinced. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and even when you read his evidence, like when, cause he has, I mean, just, he has tons of books. He has an entire earth Chronicles series, um, you know, where he presents the evidence for everything that he's laying out in lost book of Enki and everything. Uh, I mean, his explanation certainly makes more sense than God, you know, like, sure. <laughs> I mean, it sounds more scientific. Right. Right. Um, and I mean, he goes right into explaining basically like, wait a minute. So if life started in South Africa, where did the Adam and Eve story come from in Mesopotamia, you know, thousands of miles away. It's like, well, that's because they took the apes from South Africa and genetically altered them in Mesopotamia. Right. I mean, like he, he has good ideas. Um, and the whole gold thing before anybody calls that crazy. And you and I talked about this, uh, the U S government themselves, not, but some odd 10, 11, 12 years ago, it was during, actually it was during the Obama administration. His scientific advisors were recommending that very thing. And that was a new idea. People thought that was far out stuff. Sitchin Putting called, powdered gold in the atmosphere. Yeah, you mean? That, that's yeah. To, to, you know, help with climate change or whatever else. Uh, Sitchin said, no, no, that's what the Sumerians did. But he said that 30 years previous. You got to come up with a response for that. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, wait a minute. So, I mean, yes, granted, the government has a bunch of idiots, but you'd hope scientists have some brains that are involved. It's like, wait, you you came up with this, but wait, we already had people. And he got this from some ancient text. I mean, Sitchin, I know, I knew Sitchin. He's a great archaeologist, a very smart guy. He is no scientist. He is no engineer. Like, I mean, he, the, the, he couldn't have come up with that is my point. Like, that's just not his field. He couldn't have gotten that lucky, in my opinion. He read that somewhere and that that was the idea. He interpreted things that way. And you. He was a translator, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and a lot of people say that he translated some things wrong and he would adjust some of his work as years go on and everything. Um, but at the time, I mean, he was one of like six people back in the 70s that could even read Sumerian. I mean, or, you know, that could read, you know, cuneiform. Uh, it was very rare that anybody could do that. Uh, did he get some things wrong? Yeah, sure. I think so. Um, and I don't believe, you know, I don't want to give a percentage of how much I believe of what he talked about, but I think he raises some really, really interesting points. And at the very least, the one thing I can say with confidence is that he shows the Sumerians knew a whole hell of a lot more than they should have, than should have been possible at all. Can you give an example? The gold flakes. Neptune being uh, like the color of Neptune and more details around that planet. A lot of details around the solar system itself. Um, and, you know, and, I, and I've on, on Sovereign Tech, I've talked about this before, you know, any time because now the hunt for planet nine, of course, it's planet nine now instead of planet 10 because Pluto got uh, downgraded. Um, you know, the hunt for planet nine, that that's 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 happening. That's being done by universities. That's scientific. I don't want to call it fact, but they're basically saying, yeah, there's got to be something that swoops in through the, the the solar system here to explain some of what's going on. So the hunt is on for this thing. But most of Sitchin's life, he got laughed at, at the idea that there's some kind of planet that swoops through, you know, or, or that, that there's another planet in, uh, you know, that's not necessarily part of the Kuiper belt. You know, I mean, he was laughed at. And now, oh, no, yeah, yeah, we're looking for planet nine. Yeah. So there's just, there's a lot of things that I think he ended up getting right. And I think there's actually a lot of archeological evidence and 
points where there are corrections made, particularly within like uh, Egyptian mythology that he already, he had called at least in the eighties, maybe not in the seventies, but certainly by the eighties, well before anybody was considering it a fact. So anyway, he, he, again, the, the one takeaway I think that anybody can get from this is that, okay, no, these people knew a lot more than they should have. What does that mean? That's a whole other conversation to have what that means. But I do think that that's, that's proven. What, what do you got? Well, I, I'm fascinated truly. And I want to read more of his work. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I, I'm glad that I started on this book specifically because it, you know, it captures my imagination. Right. And that's really what I need in order to invest in like reading more about the historical fact, because traditionally I have not liked reading historical texts. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but, but this, I think will really encourage me to. Yeah. I would recommend, and for listeners who want to give this a shot as well, I'd recommend going, skipping right to uh, the end of days. That's, that's like not his last book, but it's the last book of the earth chronicles. And I think it recaps a lot of the previous six books in the series and gets to the point because, you know, you're, you're constantly, I mean, in the, in the book of Enki, correct me if I'm wrong, you're hearing about this cycle, right? And that, you know, maybe the gods will come back or the Anunnaki will come back at a certain point. Um, would, is that accurate? I, I'm not really sure what you're talking about. I mean, they do make journeys between Nibiru and Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and supposedly... The, the years on Nibiru or the Shars are much longer than the years on Earth. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, if, if you know, I, I think you will get left with the question of, okay, so when are these guys coming back? If it's a cycle, you know, if they, if this, you know, Nibiru comes, comes back around, uh, end of days talks about exactly that. So, and what all of that might look like. Uh, so it, it's a, it's an interesting read to say the least. And actually how it attaches things to a lot of Christian theology is interesting as well. Um, so anyway, what other thoughts do you have on Book of yeah, Nike? That's actually a good point that a lot of uh, Christian mythology, mm-hmm. I'll call it that. Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> stories from the Bible uh, supposedly, you know, can all be explained through the Anunnaki, mm-hmm. uh, especially these, uh, figures that that did really amazing acts or right. even like some of the things that uh god the character god in the bible does mm-hmm. uh you know in sitchin's rendition it's several different anunnaki demigods yeah yeah which is not and and again he's a jewish guy by the way i mean you know just to bring that up for whatever that's worth um but I think it's important, you know, for me with my fancy schmancy doctor of divinity, which I do have, um, I mean, I'll point out that there's plenty of times in the old Testament and Jews don't like to think about it either. Uh, there's plenty of times in the old Testament where, I mean, the very term Elohim is a plural term, you know, like, and, and there's, there's other aspects or even in the Septuagint where in the old Testament, not the new Testament, where there's like Trinitarian ideas or claimed Trinitarian ideas uh, in the old Testament there's, or in Torah, there's, I think there's plenty of moments where it's talking about God in a plural form. And I don't think it's referencing a Trinity. It might be referencing more something like perhaps what, what Sitchin is pointing at, that it was actually a, a bunch of different actors involved. Um, 
So, yeah, it's an interesting thing to bring up. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, it's fascinating to me, too, because it ties together multiple different myth- mythologies. Right. Uh, not just Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and they all kind of blend together. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a fascinating read. Um, and I don't know too many books that actually do this sort of thing where they they try to go for like a. They try to make it sound like a testament. They try to make it sound like the older New Testament or something like that. Um, but I love it when it's done because mm-hmm. I don't know. There's, there's just something very engaging about it. And I mean, granted, there's Mormons. They get into that. But, uh, but yeah, that, I think like the first week that I started listening to this book, I, I mentioned that to you. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're, this book is focusing on this really advanced alien race, but it's being um, spoken about in a like a really old English kind of form yeah uh and i i just love that that it's a really cool juxtaposition yeah yeah there's another book there's a book called the book of hurem by christopher knight and robert lomas where they try to create like a and they're freemasons like they're real ones and they try to create a like a freemasonic history and they write basically what they call the masonic testament in it where it reads like it's like the old testament or new testament but it's supposed to be, you know, history according to Freemasons and that, and it's such an engaging read. I love it. Um, yeah. Anyway, a lot of fun. So, uh, anything else on lost book of Enki? Uh, not right now. I mean, I I'm getting to the point where I think they're the Anunnaki are just about to leave earth. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I guess I'll have an update next time I'm on the show. Yeah. Well, let's see if you read that. And if you happen to catch read end of days, um, you know, before next time you're on, which maybe, maybe not, uh, that, that'd be an interesting conversation to have. Yeah. So I will, the book that I've been, or that I finished recently, um, I actually started it a little bit back. Then I stopped for a little while and I came back to it. Interestingly, it's fiction, totally fiction, but it posits a very plausible possibility of how you end up with things like you do in Torah or how you end up with stories like in the old Testament, kind of like what the book of Enki is trying to explain. Right. Uh, and the book's called, uh, earth, earth abides. This is considered a literary classic. It's from 1949 by George R. Stewart. It's a very early post-apocalyptic, uh, novel. And I mean, this is like, I think this would be before day of the Triffids, uh, which I've reviewed that on the show in the past. Um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time going over it, but basically in the forties, like, I forget what exactly happens, but a huge chunk of humanity just dies. You know, there's some kind of epidemic or whatever, and and people just die. Uh, and you follow this character named Ish. Uh, his real name is Isherwood something. And I think it's interesting that the name is Ish because it kind of reminds me of Ishtar. And Book of Enki might actually have something to say about Ishtar. But I'm, I know people are going to hate me when I say this, but that's a road we're not going to go down right now. Uh, but I just do think that that's interesting. And I want to point it out because I haven't read anybody else bring that up. Um, but earth abides again, literary classic. Uh, and the way, I mean, it, it deal, it's, you know, it, I mean, at the time it was new, but if you've seen walking dead or if you've seen any of the new horse shit that comes out, that gets called entertainment. Um, it, it feels a lot like that. Um, you know, a lot of the tropes are there, but again, they weren't tropes when George Stewart wrote it. I find, because when you get towards, and I, I'm not really giving anything away because it's a journey you really have to experience. 
But basically they are, you know, after civilization kind of falls, they're using a lot of what's left over from civilization, but eventually that starts to fail. Um, and the character of Ish, who's the main character, he has to constantly deal with the fact that like the children that are getting born after this fall, they don't care to read. They don't like, like they, they're not interested in learning how all these things work or in fixing things and whatever else they just want to, you know, go about their peaceful, happy lives. And so all these things just start to disappear and fall away and stop working. And there's, there's a lot of really deep psychological subjects, but here that, that it gets into, like he has this hammer and that eventually becomes the symbol like this, this guy, because Ish is like the last guy who understands how any of this stuff works very much becomes a Moses or like Abrahamic character towards the end. And when you read it, you can really see how, you know what, maybe all these stories about Abraham and Moses and whatever, they were holdovers from some other civilization and like, well, how we read them now is just the best way that their descendants could describe them, you know, because like eventually Ish becomes what's called the last American, you know, and, and, and it smacks very much of, uh, say like Moses or, I mean, he wasn't the last Hebrew, but, you know, kind of very similar concepts. It, it, I mean, when you read it, there's, there's no, there's no supernaturalism at all involved, but it makes a lot of sense of how a story like the stories we know from particularly the Pentateuch, the books of Moses could have come about in a very rational, reasonable way that could have happened 50 years ago. It's really, really wild for that. Um, but the one thing is that to get to that payoff and I recommend it, it's a long book and you're going to have to go through three quarters of the book before you get that payoff. It's interesting. It's, it's, it's interesting stuff, albeit tropey today, uh, for that first three quarters, but that last quarter, everything comes together and you do walk away from it going, wow, I wonder if that's how these things happened. It's speculation, but it's fun. It's excellent book. So do you think the author wrote this book with that intention in Had mind? To. Had to. Uh, I mean, it's too, there's too many illusions. Uh, and I mean, right down to where like there's, there's a point where Ish can't really see. And it's almost like a Jacob and Esau kind of story that he experiences. Um, I mean, it, it just, it just totally smacks of, I mean, he, 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 I think the author absolutely had to do that. And I've read some reviews and they, they basically understand that he kind of did, but I don't think, I don't know that enough people went far enough with what George R. Stewart was, was really laying out with this, but it, it is an interesting juxtaposition to the lost book of Enki. I would say that they, they could fit together nicely. Like if you read those back to back, you would walk away with a very interesting perspective. I think. You think that if I had read this book, that I'd be more convinced of the Anunnaki. Hypothesis? No, no, no. Cause I, I'd see it more as an alternative, uh, as an alternative possibility, just that it, it like the book of Enki can do. It raises questions of, Hmm, what if that's how this happened? You know, I mean, and kind I'm of fully, implying that there's something that came before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and how, you know, how that something that came before can disappear as well as be vastly misconstrued sure. into the future, uh, which I personally think has happened. Um, 
you know, I've, I've brought that up many times on the show that I think that there were pre-advanced uh, uh, civilizations. And I mean, we're, you know, we're talking like before Gobekli Tepe, but uh, go yeah. Ahead. So I, I think that it's really interesting because one thing that uh, people seem to not truly understand is how quickly information can disappear mm-hmm. when it's not being actively preserved or replicated. Or when there is a societal trauma sure. that, that occurs. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, major happenings. Mm-hmm. The evidence can just, you know, wither away right. very quickly. Um, especially like as people age, they forget, they die. Um, y- you know, information can be lost and it can happen within like 30 years. Yeah. Or, or frankly, even less. Um, I've brought this point up many times. Uh, in fact, it was a book that we talked about during Sovereign Tech Book Club uh, a few episodes ago. Uh, the book by Dr. Greger, How to Survive a Pandemic. In that, he lays out how the instant that the Spanish uh, uh, Spanish flu was resolved, the instant it was resolved, not 10 years down the line, the instant it was resolved, people stopped talking about it. Like it never happened. You they had, just wanted to move yeah, on. Yes. You had a societal amnesia, self-imposed, that just happened. And I mean, and and people... You know, the, the, the amount of the, the buildings, the there, there are whole terms that we have that come that, that we still use today that come from the response to dealing with the just the rampant amount of bodies involved with the Spanish flu, you know, with the deaths that uh, that we still use today. Nobody knows that that's what those terms mean because nobody wanted to remember. And so it, it's a real case where, you know, life or, you know, life in society was was this was this terror at one point. But then one day, nobody remembered. You know, I wish we could put a bookmark in this conversation and come back to it a year from now or two years from now. Oh, about and, and how's it going to be with COVID? Yeah, exactly. How, mm-hmm. how are people going to respond to the coronavirus pandemic and possibly its resolution? Yeah, I mean, the difference here is that the Internet doesn't forget. Back then, newspapers could. The Internet cannot. Uh, and so you know, I don't know that it's ever going to necessarily happen that happen that way again but i agree with you and that's something i i certainly keep in mind well the information's not going to disappear off of mm-hmm. the internet it'll always be in data banks somewhere but mm-hmm. does that mean that people are going to be talking about it or it will be an active part of people's memory yeah i don't i don't know i mean there, you already you already have plenty of people who basically want to pretend it it doesn't exist you know and and that it's not and that it's not something that's that's happening or whatever um and i'm not you know, taking a, any sides on that. I'm just saying that there are those people. So yeah, I, I agree with you. We'll bookmark it. I think it's something that we'll keep an eye on, but for me that like, that's such a fascinating notion. Cause I agree with you in a generation. Sure. Things can, can disappear that, that in 30 years, people can forget about stuff, you know? Um, I mean, that happens every day. There sure. Are, there it, are kids now who don't know what a VCR is. Exactly. Yes. Bingo. Right. Um, but for it to happen so instantaneously, as in literally overnight, uh, is is remarkable. But it has to be deaths in the millions. You know, like it has to be deaths at that scale to where that can happen. It has to be that traumatic. But it can happen. And, I mean, you know, in Earth Abides, it's exactly what they're laying out. You know, is that, yeah, just overnight, a ton of people dead. You know, and... and and people just kind of move on. And the generation that comes next has no fucking clue. And 
fascinating reading, uh, a great book to this day, in my opinion, and deal with the tropes because this was a trendsetter. Uh, you know, if you like, don't say, well, I already watched walking dead, so I don't need to read earth abides. No, stop watching walking dead or stop all your modern zombie media. Cause it's crap and go read earth abides. Okay. Cause that's not so <laughs> See, I'll get in my jab somewhere on modernity. <laughs> I took my shot. Uh, anyway, that's the book that I was reading and I don't want to, we don't have to like deep dive on it any further. Um, but, uh, but a, a really, really solid read. Uh, I have been reading, I, you know, I've been reading my usual star Wars books. I've been rereading the Anita Blake series in between all of that, but that's, that's kind of the one big book that I think is relevant to, to kind of what we're talking about here. So anyway, unless you have anything else you want to bring up, Ellen, we can uh, take a break and we'll come back and, uh, we got to get into some stories. Sure, sounds good to me. All right, let's do it. We'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech. Hey, is Sovereign Tech not enough for you? Well, let me tell you about something you'll never get enough of. No, no, I mean it. We're talking about a radio show and podcast that goes all night long, seven nights a week, three hours a night, 365 days a year, and has been going since the early aughts, baby. I am talking about none other than Free Talk Live. It's the show you control. That's right. It's an open phones call-in show that is ready for you. And if you're worried that your voice isn't going to get heard, don't be. We are talking about the only libertarian radio show stateside. And not only that, it's also the number 26 talk show in the United States. Start listening now and go ahead and hit that massive back catalog at freetalklive.com. The Golden Stallion guarantees a good time, and you might even find some episodes with me on them when you do. That's freetalklive.com, and we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Let's get back to the show. The Main Story And we are back. I mean, frankly, so Ellen, we've been going over an hour now already. Uh, well, you've been going. Well, I've been, you've been going. Are you telling, are you kidding me? <laughs> you've been going on and on. No, I'm kidding. That's I what do you're supposed on. to do. Yeah, you're I'm the, the host. You're the host. <laughs> <laughs> but regardless, uh, I mean, I don't know how we fit this in. This is the biggest challenge with, with doing the show, at least. And I think this is true for a lot of people. I don't know. 2020 is that weird year where it seems like there's people who have nothing to do. And then there's the other half, or maybe it's not half who, you know, just have too much. Um, I, I think we, you and I fall in the ladder more than ever before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are non nonstop. I mean, we're, we're basically, yeah. I mean, that's the hardest part for me is squeezing in, you know, a full two hours to, to get in a full episode and you can't, you could say, well, you can record it in pieces, but that's, that's not how the show rolls. No, you, you know how be, that goes. Yeah. You, you lose the drive, the motivation, the, the, the energy, the theme, yeah. you know, that like that sticks through and where you can, you know, call back to what you're talking about previously, because ultimately I think a lot of what we were talking about, even during the book club speaks very much to what we're about to get into. Yeah, actually um, to a lot of what we've, you know, been doing or consumed in the last week. 
Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we, you know, again, you did have some time off for Thanksgiving. Uh, I kind of had a day off, uh, but we decided, you know what, look, we're, we're, we're driving ourselves nuts. I mean, because we're just nonstop, you know, I'm working, you're doing, you know, your school thing, the whole thing. We got to get away. And so we, (laughs) we basically reverted to our childhood selves for a a day. (laughs) Yeah. Well, <laughs> we ran up north. I mean, we were just like, right, we just, we got to change the scene. We got to, we just got to get out of here. You yeah. know? And, and so, <laughs> so we ran up north uh, and, you know, we, we did what we do. Uh, <laughs> we had fun in a hotel room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for whatever that means. Take, take that how you want it. Uh, but, uh, but we also got in uh, a couple of flicks anyway, while we were, while we were out and about. Yeah. And one of them, I think we should talk about now. Uh, and I want to review it because it speaks to what is actually our main story, which has to do with Elon Musk. And ironically, I think you might've been on the last time we were talking about Elon Musk, but, um, well, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it'll get to that. But I think the, and and we just, we were in the hotel room, you know, and we were kind of exhausted because we just got done doing things and you're like, yeah, you got to have a movie, Brian. Like, we got some something we can watch. You've and always got something I on do. hand. I do. You see, my computer is my country, and my country is bountiful. <laughs> <laughs> Rich and, in entertainment. Oh, is it? <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I'm just, like, listing off all these movies that I happen to have on a micro SD card. Um, the internet for the hotel, because it's up north, and I don't see this as a problem, I see it as a good thing, was incredibly slow. So Plex wasn't exactly going to be up to snuff to play some movies off of there. And I didn't bring any Blu-rays with me. So we had what we had on hand, which was a large selection, but we were looking for specific things. And you just, you basically said, you know what? It was the end of the night. I think what was it? It was after 10 p.m. Yeah, which is late for us. Right. Usually we're going to sleep at around that Mm -hmm. time. But we're having wild and crazy nights. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it kept on going. Yeah. And uh, and and you had said, it's like, yeah, I just, I feel like I need to watch a documentary. And I don't know if it's because, you know, we felt like we had to get in touch with more of our intellectual side after spending so much time with our animal side. Maybe. Well, maybe. <laughs> well, to be, to be honest, I mean, mm. I won't break it down entirely, but sure. I, I've been spending so much time just focused on, you know, coursework. Right. Uh and I haven't really had time to consume the media that I want to or yeah. like, you know, learn about things that I actually feel passionate about. And we had that opportunity. Yeah. And also, you and I both love documentaries. Absolutely. Uh, we've talked about this before, how many documentaries we want to watch together. So yes. it was it just felt right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's rare for us to be able to take in long form content, uh, frankly, because I mean, yeah, we get in audiobooks, but usually we're listening to those at higher speeds or whatever. And just by their nature, they're easy, they're easy to take in in chunks as to where much like I was just saying about an episode of Sovereign Tech, a documentary, you really don't want to watch that in pieces. No. Like you want to get that all in one shot because it's giving you an entire narrative. It's important to keep that in mind. We might talk about that when we talk about the this particular documentary. But that's important. I mean, you know, we play video games here and there, but it's because it's something we can squeeze in for 30 minutes to an hour. Sure. Or when we watch Star Trek, that's like the amount of time time. it takes us to eat dinner. Exactly. Exactly. So it just fits, you know, but otherwise we wouldn't do it. Uh, Which, by the way, I mean, boy, how far along would you say you are in in, um, Super Mario Sunshine? I'm pretty far. I've got, you know, over 80 shine sprites. (laughs) <laughs> wow yeah, yeah okay 
Uh, so far, I've gone through at least three or four of the worlds, and I, I've gotten all of the blue coins. I've gotten all mm-hmm. the shine sprites. Um, so, so yeah, I'm over halfway through the game, if yeah. not farther. I, there's no real way for me to gauge. I don't remember exactly how many shine sprites are in the game, mm-hmm. but I know... Based on the worlds that I am aware of, I've I've over fifty percent completed it. Right, because it's not a totally linear game. Right, um, yeah. as you progress, more and more things become revealed to you. Yeah, so you're getting into mini game talk here, folks, because we're not going to have a full game talk segment. Uh, but yeah, now you're playing this on the original GameCube. You're not playing the version to Mario 3D All Stars on the Switch, which right. I do have. But you're playing this on the OG GameCube. The GameCube controller is awesome. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. It's one of my favorites. Not as good as the Duke, but it's up there. Um, yeah. So anyway, you're having a good time with that. Uh, yeah. 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 I'm actually getting really good at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're the whole reason I picked up an, uh, a GameCube um, because there, we wanted Which to play Double so Dash. And, well, yeah. yeah well, you know, I'm a master of entertainment. That's that's really, really what I'm best at. But uh, Well, now that we know that I can kick your ass at Double Dash... We don't play it anymore. Oh, you, you beat me at pretty much every game. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, uh, I've been getting in some time with my Saturn, which has been a really, really great time. Uh, yeah. You've really been working on that. Oh man. Yeah. Cause I, well, anyway, I'll be doing a whole episode, a whole show about it uh, because it, it was an experience putting this thing together, but what a, what, what a dream playing that fucking thing, playing an original Sega Saturn, but, slightly enhanced it's just just magical so but anyway but i will i will you know i have my mode in it tons of games man you know it's so sad like i feel like i'm we got to get into the story but i just feel like you know i'm surrounded by so much so much fun so many things that i could do and it's like when you have all that (laughs) stuff you just can never touch it it's it's a weird i don't know life works out that way but it's not like we're locked up in a biosphere or anything however Eight people were for a couple of years back in the early nineties. And we watched an entire documentary about this matter. Uh, documentary is called spaceship earth and it was released in 2020. I don't know how long they took exactly to, uh, to produce it. Uh, it's about two hours long. The documentary overall, um, it's made by Matt Wolf, who he's done other documentaries, but nothing really that, uh, that, that stands out to, to my mind. Uh, but this is all about the Biospherians. This is all about the eight people. And I remember this when I was a kid. I was probably around 10 when this ended up becoming a thing. Uh, the the eight people and as well as the entire like group. I don't want to. I mean, it's an organization. It's literally an or, like a legal corporation. But um, this entire group that that made this come together back in the early 90s. And what they were their claim, what they're trying to do was is the idea was that eight people would go into this biosphere, this environment created, planned, that would simulate what a colony, perhaps, would be like on another planet. Um, And they would do it for two years, and they'd never leave. And it was supposed to be, everything was supposed to be self-contained, self-sustaining, the whole thing, for two years. This was, uh, I mean, this was the talk of the town from like 91 to 93. I, I can remember it pretty vividly. Um, it is as the documentary would showcase, it was not done with a whole or with what scientists would consider scientific rigor, at least not enough, uh, as far as that goes. 
And, you know, the first, probably the first hour of it had nothing to do with the biosphere itself. It had to do with this group who, that was more or less founded by this guy named John Allen. And I mean, it was, it was like a hippie group, but they didn't do drugs, right? Do do I understand that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. So this group was essentially formed out of the desire to have a a theater group. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it was sort of like, it was formed in like, I think late sixties, early seventies, yes. yeah. uh, at a time when people were really experimenting with things like communes. Yep. Um, so it was kind of like their own little commune, but they didn't do drugs at all, uh, because that would have taken away from their productivity. Uh, but they did. And they were productive. Yeah. They <laughs> Holy did shit. Really incredible things. Like yeah. They, they had the theater group, but they also built boats and hotels and, um, yeah, they were just Art galleries. They have businesses. So prolific. Yeah, they have businesses literally all around the world mm-hmm. uh, that they founded. But I mean, if you and when you watch the movie, like especially when they're doing their theater, it seems like you're hippie avant garde types, you know. Uh, but oh no, like these people were capitalists with a capital fucking C. I mean, holy shit, uh, it, 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 it's impressive. And most of these businesses they still own to this day and still operate like in London and other places continue. Yeah. So anyway, I think a lot of these businesses, they, they did because they just needed to make money mm-hmm. in order to stay alive um, and, and to continue funding their projects, yeah. which were really amazing. And like, I, I, part of me wants to have been part of this group or wishes that I could have been because mm-hmm. they, once they set their minds to something, they did it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like they even built their own like self-sustaining ranch out in the desert. Yep. Which was really was Synergy Ranch. Is that yeah. What it was called? Synergia yeah. or something like Synergy that. Synergy Ranch, I think. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Continue. Um, yeah. But I I just remember being so fascinated by the story about them building a ship. Like they built a ship, the Heraclitus. Yes. Uh, they had never done anything like this before, but they had a whole team of people just come together and learn their own individual skills and put it together. And when they finally pulled it into the water, it floated. And they even had a guy who knew like stellar uh, navigation. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So anyway, it was, it was just amazing to think that like at that time you could really get a group of people who shared a vision together, Mm -hmm. build something and travel around the world. Yeah. I mean, we're not even talking, I don't even think there was 20 people. No through the bulk of the history of this group, um, this, I mean, and basically it's a theater troupe, you know, it, like that, that's, that's what they were, whatever is called the theater of impossibilities or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. I mean, when, when they build that ship and it gets towed out, I mean, t- were you expecting that thing to capsize instantly? It just keeps going down and down yeah. and down. And then suddenly it raises up Yeah, and you're like, holy shit, they did it. <laughs> and, and they traveled the world. Yeah. They, they, I mean, they absolutely traveled the world. They I, went everywhere. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that a lot of what this group did legally, they would just run into so much red tape. They, they'd suffocate from it today. Uh, today, you know, like you could only do this in a very lax legal environment. Um, but they did it. And mm-hmm. again, all this stuff is, has sustained itself. I don't know what happened to the Heraclitus. I know they're building a new one. Like they said that at the end of the documentary, mm-hmm. but what a remarkable group. I mean, what a remarkable human story. Yeah. They could literally do anything. Right. They were, it just felt like they were very powerful in that once they set their mind to doing something, mm-hmm. they could achieve any goal. Now, granted, 
there is a there's a ace in the hole for them. And right. that is a guy named Ed Bass, who is the second oldest son of the Bass family, which is, I mean, they're they're Texas oil tycoons. I mean, all the money you could want um, in a very real way. And he became like really good friends or I don't know if there's any kind of mentorship where because the leader of the group, John Allen, who's this, apparently this very charismatic guy, even though I never thought the documentary showed him as being particularly charismatic. Well, no, they they didn't include much film about him mm-hmm, or centering mm-hmm. on him necessarily. But Ed Bass was a young guy. John Allen was older, you know, so I mean, I guess Ed Bass just thought John Allen was this really brilliant dude and funded a lot of his stuff. So, I mean, they had that going for them is that they they had an oil tycoon basically backing them up. We don't know to what right. degree, um, but most of what they did, I feel like, you know, enterprising individuals could pull it off, like even the boat, like they could pull it off without a Ned Bass type character. Basically, they 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 had meetings where they just explored ideas. And one of them had this idea of how do you make a space habitat? Yeah, they actually set up a, a series of conferences where they mm-hmm. invited like scientific minds, people right. who are scientists, architects, uh, environmentalists. And they basically just talked about like, you know, the biggest concerns mm-hmm. of the planet, which was, you know, like longevity. Can we travel to other places? Like right. the Earth is our home, our biosphere, but it's not going to be that way forever if we keep trashing it. Yeah, I mean, they they would have like a lot of guys that would later become pivotal in, say, talks around climate change and, you know, all these other things. And anyway, it it was definitely, you know, uh, at the time, like advanced stuff, you know, whether or not John Allen understood any of it is a whole other conversation or or I mean, maybe you got the abstract notions, but. Well, these I'm sure these people understood it. They had a very. it seemed like a very deep concern mm-hmm. and understanding for the Earth's biosphere. It's right. just they weren't the ones that were performing the experiments. You know, they weren't writing the papers or anything. Right. Well, so one of their group, not one of the like scientists that came in for the talks, but one of their group basically had this idea. And he did this like spherical model of what a space habitat would look like. John Allen saw it and says, all right, that's what we're doing. And. And yeah. everybody just looks at him, just like when they built the Heraclitus and everything else. They're like, okay, that's what we're doing. <laughs> and Bass was really into it. Like, yeah. he he heard about this, and he thought it was very important. Yeah, be, and and John Allen said he made, made it very clear that, like, John Allen made it clear that, okay, the first biosphere might not work. It'll take a few other tries, but we're going to keep learning as we do it until we get it right. And Ed Bass thought the money in it was that, yeah, we would figure out how to make space colonies and... I'm sure he thought that he'd get some patents out of it or something like that. and Or that maybe he'd have like a hand in owning the first extraterrestrial right. station. Right, right. So he saw the money in that, you know. Uh, and so because this group, this this theater troupe could not build the biosphere. This building is gorgeous, is huge. Uh, it's all glass. I mean, like, it's really, really impressive. I mean, you have entire construction teams from around the world coming to build this damn thing. Sure. Maybe they couldn't build it on their own, but they right. got all the right people together having the right yes. conversations and yes. they hired the right people to do it. So even though they themselves weren't the experts, they were they they had this sort of like synergistic 
uh, skill where they could bring together all of the right people and motivate them. Yes, that that's true. They, they could pull that off. Um, so they do this, they build it, they go, they, they, they choose their eight and they go in and they do it for two years. Now there's varying drama that occurs within that. Um, like, uh, one gal gets her, like the tip of her finger chopped off and she has to get surgery. So she has to go outside of the dome or outside of the sphere. And, um, and there's controversy because she brings in two duffel bags back with her. They weren't supposed to get anything from the outside. She brought in stuff from the outside. There's all these different things that occur where they make claims against the very concept of the biosphere itself. Um, and and what it was doing, what do you got? Oh, I, I'm just interested in like the biosphere design. They don't talk much about this, but I mm-hmm. think it's really fascinating that they included uh, like different ecological systems all mm. within the same biosphere and not necessarily separated by hard boundaries. Right. It, maybe some of them were, but they had like desert, they had ocean, they had a rainforest and a marsh. Um, and, and they went out all around the world and collected life forms from these unique places and brought them into the biosphere kind of like enki did in with the sumerian or sorry no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right yeah exactly i mean but i mean they even say it it's very noah's ark like what, what, yeah. what they're pulling off and one of the guys involved who's one of the eight um he it's funny because he directly referenced something we're actually going to talk about later in this episode he directly referenced the movie silent running right uh from 72 which we just recently watched. It just recently came out on Blu-ray. I grabbed the Blu-ray and then we checked it out. Uh, and this, I mean, the biosphere itself looks exactly like the ship out of uh, the Valley Forge. Um, it does I, kind of have a geodesic design. Yeah. It looks very much like right out of silent running. And I think that they designed like the idea that you were just describing with the different zones and everything that they did on the inside is very much like silent running, mm-hmm. which, you know, is important. It was made by Doug Trumbull, a brilliant guy, who definitely saw ahead with things, who was the special effects wizard behind 2001, a space odyssey and so on. Um, so it's not like they weren't pulling from great material. They didn't, it's not like they didn't have great inspiration, but we can talk about silent running more later. Um, yeah. So these zones, I mean, and this Noah's Ark concept. Yeah. And, and so maybe the group that put together this idea, they weren't scientists, but there were scientists inside the dome. They had a Marine biologist, I don't think she was an entomologist. Maybe she was, uh, she like worked with plants. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm not sure exactly what her title was, but she was, she was definitely into uh, the study of plants. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had a medical doctor there as well. Um, They had a guy who just could work with all of the mechanical parts and the computer. Uh, Just an engineering genius. Right. Right. So they did have a handful of actual scientists in there. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, there, there was controversy around the two duffel bags. Supposedly there's just clothes and, and some, some computer, computer parts. parts that were coming in. Uh, but that, that first critique is actually one of the major critiques of the overall project, which is that, um, you know, the, the motivation behind this wasn't strictly just scientific. Like, yes, there was scientific discovery, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of wrapped up in this whole idea and that was the main purpose of it. But the the execution wasn't, strictly speaking, uh, according to the, the scientific method. Yeah. So it, it wasn't 100% self-sustaining. It was self-containing, but it wasn't 100% self-sustaining. Right. Uh, and that there is a, 
drastic difference between those two terms. Um, and that's an important thing to bring up. I mean, it, it's a documentary, modern documentaries, you know, unfortunately, as much as I wish documentaries were still made like Jacques Cousteau would do, you know, or, uh, you know, Ascent of Man or Cosmos, uh, documentaries today feel like they have to include drama in them. And there's real world drama that happened with this, you know, like the duffel bags and some other things. Um, but you know, but all that stuff, whatever it's it, people think that that makes something engaging and it's included in it. Um, I think I want to, I want to, well, one, one point I want to bring up and then I kind of want to talk about more of the viability on this. Uh, but also if you have other points that you want to get into, I want to bring those up as well. Uh, I mean, this is considered a failure. The, the biosphere was considered a failure. Would you say that's fair? I guess that's how the media portrayed it. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't necessarily feel that way, mm -hmm. but uh, we can talk about that more after we're done discussing it. Okay. So uh, there's, there's a conversation to have around all the data that they were collecting this whole time in the biosphere. Guess what folks that's gone. It's either gone or not accessible. Yeah, they were anybody. collecting data on like carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, all these chemical markers. They were collecting data on tons of stuff, like the plants that were living and dying, and, and right, like they're they're they were recycling everything. Right. Uh, they they had to cook everything based on what they had inside, which was a lot of beets and bananas. And yeah, every cake fruits. was made out of banana. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, well, anyway, when it fails, or at least its original two-year version fails, because now it's owned by the University of Arizona, and they're still doing some kind of experiments there, but it's nothing like the biosphere. I don't think it's fair to say that it failed. Their two-year mission was completed, yep. and they came out, and uh, after that, basically, the top people in the organization were fired by Bass exactly. and replaced. Yes. So that's the point I want to get to is just to bring this in about the movie itself. It doesn't have to do with our larger conversation. I can believe this entire documentary got made for the last 15 minutes that has nothing to do with the experiment itself. Uh, the guy who took over for John Allen when he got kicked out, like you were just describing, was uh, Steve Bannon. Who That's Steve Bannon. That's Steve Bannon. Trump, Steve Bannon, that guy, you know, alt-right Steve Bannon, whatever, uh, you know, Breitbart, Steve Bannon. And I could believe this entire documentary was funded just to be a hit piece against Steve Bannon. Not that I have a problem with that. You want to do hit pieces, you know, on any politician, I am in support of you. And I don't care if it's Democrat, Republican or whatever. Okay. Because <laughs> fuck them all. But, <laughs> uh, but I'm just saying that if, if I had a guess as to, wait, how did this, how did this documentary get made? I think that's where the money on that came from. Um, because somebody had dirt on Steve Bannon. Yeah. Because right. They had recordings of him like being brutal about what he did to John Allen. Uh, and I mean, like he does not walk away looking like any kind of a good guy and, and they save it. It's, it's like, it's like, it's the zinger at the end, the, the, the attack on Steve Bannon. Um, so I'm just putting that in there that, that I think that's how this movie got made, but that's the end of that conversation. You know, like, like I don't have any other point to go with that because this whole thing is still fascinating. Yeah. Uh, there were so many other fascinating parts about mm -hmm. this whole experiment. Mm -hmm. And I know you were saying that it was considered to be a failure. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think that it has to be a failure. Agreed. Uh, I think the, so like the, 
within the first year, when it came to winter and the sun was coming through less and less, mm-hmm. uh, they they had a decrease in the amount of vegetation that was growing, of course, um, which means that their oxygen production was going down and CO2 was building up. Right. And they got an emergency supply of oxygen pumped into their system. Yes. And the media was going crazy over this, saying that it was a failure, it wasn't scientifically rigorous, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and there were even people that were fired from the project or quit voluntarily saying, like, this is just uh, environmentally conscious drama. That yeah, they're just trying to raise awareness. They called it, like, ecological entertainment. That, yeah, That's right. what they called it, yeah. Uh, not that it was scientific, even though they were running tests. But I get, I get what they're coming from. Like, mm-hmm. there could have been more scientifically rigorous testing done. There could have been a more clearly outlined plan. But... The management was turning secretive because the media was portraying them as failures. Yeah. And like the the finance gal or the marketing gal for the whole thing, uh, she said, look, if they were just honest about the fact that there was a pipe that they could feed in oxygen or, you know, that they could feed in CO2 or whatever, if they were just honest about all these things, the, the like the scrubber, the carbon scrubber, if they were honest about all these elements that she thinks the media would have backed off. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and, and I, I agree. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think that, I mean, for me, like actually with this show, with Sovereign Tech itself, so much of what I get to scream and holler about is the marketing because Google says they're doing X when I go, no, 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 no. Wait, if you're doing X, then Y is Z, you know, like, like this, this doesn't, this doesn't add up. And it's because the mark, like marketing language, just people trump stuff up way too much. And so they sold this as self-containing if they didn't, or uh, or self-sustaining. If they didn't sell it as self-sustaining, all these arguments that the media brought up, all the drama would have meant nothing because like, we never claim that, you know, that like that, that's what they could have said. But it doesn't even matter because mm-hmm. they knew from the beginning, this was a trial and error experiment that yes. might not work out the way that they wanted it to, but mm-hmm. they were going to learn from it, mm-hmm. you know? And That's the most important thing to do if you genuinely are interested in getting people off of the planet somewhere else where they can live in a self-sustaining environment, at least a place that self-sustains for six months at a time. Right. uh, And then can get shipments, which is not unreasonable. No, it happens with the ISS. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Like if it had been seen from that perspective by the media, Mm -hmm. I think things would have been uh, there would have not been a problem. Uh, but also, you know, just being forthright and honest from the team about what they were doing and what the, the purpose was and, and what they were able to do. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I just think that it was all portrayed in a bad way unnecessarily. Mm. Um, and that's why it was considered a failure. But it was not. And it doesn't have to be. It's only a failure if nobody continues the experiment. Right. Right. That's what they said from the beginning. It's going to fail, but we need to learn from it and keep going. Yeah. We'll do a better one next time. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Let me ask you three questions. One, do you recommend people watch this documentary? Of course. Okay. Did you think it was a good documentary? I thought it was a good documentary. I mean, the first hour is not about the biosphere at all. Right. But it's about the group and you kind of learn more about the people involved in the group and how it came to be. Yeah. And. That in itself is an experience. Right. Okay. Um, so do you, so you don't, con- 
I'm asking a question. You don't consider the biosphere, that two-year experiment, to be a failure? Again, I only think it's a failure if it's not repeated. I think Mm -hmm. it was a failure on the part of the new team that was instituted that they destroyed the data. Yeah, yeah, or locked it away or whatever. a total shame. I mean, the people who collected that data weren't even able to interpret it and present it. So now I'm at like four or five questions. Okay. So (laughs) you, you think that this experiment was absolutely worthwhile. We've got a story here. Musk is talking about that. He's going to get a million people on Mars before you know it in his lifetime. And he is not that young of a man. Um, Granted, he might think he'll live to 200, which, but regardless, do you think that this is worthwhile? Do you think more of these should have been done? Yeah, I absolutely think that if Musk wants to send people to Mars, he needs to do this first. Okay. Because nobody is going to want to go live in an untested facility mm-hmm. on another planet where you're not going to be able to survive. If there is no incoming oxygen, you know, what's going to happen? Right. People are just going to die. That's why this needs to be done. The failure needs to happen here on Earth in a safe environment before they can transport the successful experiment up to Mars. Okay. To to have a successful and safe place for people to live. All right. Let me ask you this question now, because this kind of leads directly into that. Do you think, because the media claimed this at the time, do you think that this theater troupe and you know the eight people that went in, do you think that they were a cult or part of a cult? No, I don't think they were part of a cult. You don't think John Allen was a cult leader? I think maybe, and and this is said in the documentary too, there there are characteristics of a cult that can be seen in the group, mm-hmm. but it's also said that that's kind of the par, par for the course for like startups. Yes. Um, that, that people are really a close-knit group and they have their own uh, sort of language. They have an internal understanding um, and there's generally one charismatic leader, and that's John Allen. Uh, so I, I think there might be some sort of like cult recognition within their group, but mm-hmm. I didn't see any red flags. There wasn't anything that necessarily told me like he's a sociopath or uh-huh. these people are, uh, you know, they're following this guy blindly. It didn't seem that way at all. It seemed like they all had their own. Um, they were all able to think and speak freely. Like they weren't just following him uh, exactly to the letter. And they were all taking part in an organization that was doing something beneficial. And of course they weren't doing drugs either. I mean, that part impressed the hell out of me. Yeah. You know, because (laughs) like I, I, a commune from the seventies. Right. And nobody's doing drugs. Yeah. I mean, and obviously I think it's great. I mean, you know, if people want to do drugs, I don't care. You know, I really don't care, but, um, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I I felt some vindication watching this sort of thing, you know, because I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, an infamous teetotaler. Uh, and anyway, I, I was just very impressed by that, um, that they, that they didn't. And, and, and I think it's good too, because then you can't write them off. Right you know, as just being like an LSD cult or something like that, you know, uh, they don't seem crazy at all. 
They no. seem very sane. They're just a little quirky. Yeah, definitely quirky. But I could even like their theater stuff that they're doing. I'm like, yeah, shit, I've done that. You know, I mean, yeah. if I'm ever home alone, I act like animal out of the Muppets. I mean, I'm just going, you know, banging the drums. <laughs> blah, 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 you know? I mean, like, <laughs> come on. That's exactly what I do. So uh, that's nothing to me or, or hell. I'm talking to the cat all day. I mean, it, it, <laughs> you do talk to the cat a lot. Yeah. So <laughs> and, you know, one thing that I really admired was before they started the, the Biosphere Project, mm-hmm. they put together a play called The Wrong Stuff. Which they acted out everything that could possibly go wrong yes. in the biosphere. And I just thought that was so precious. Like, yes. that's that's a really great way to deal with uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is to actually, like, play it out in your mind and that way you're ready for it when it happens. It's a very stoic thing to do. Uh, yes. Not just stoics, <laughs> but yes. Yeah. Not just stoics, but yeah, that's one thing that I think stoics got right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, stoics get a lot right, but then also they're not unique to stoicism. By any stretch. Okay. So, well, still. <laughs> but but that's that's fine. I'll, I'll I'll let let's let's call it where it is. Uh, so okay. Um, yeah. I mean, to your statement, I'll just say quickly to your statement. Uh, I do agree that I think any like really new venture that is more than two or three people does have at the very least cultish aspects, if not an environment that could that could very readily. Uh, fit into the definition of a cult. Um, and so I think it had cultish aspects, but no different than Google or Facebook or, you know, go down the list of most startups. Um, I mean, fuck, I go online and I see like, you know, companies that I think are pushing a great technology, like say, say solar power. And I see the most terrifying things with these employees, uh, that, that blow my mind and make me want to run away from solar energy more than be, uh, you know, inspired by it, but I won't, I digress. Um, so I get that. Um, do I think that these are worthwhile experiments? Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Even for the psychological aspects of it, what is it like to have eight people together for that long, uh, you know, for two whole years, you know, I mean, yes, they still have the comfort of being on earth and all they have to do is walk out the door if things get bad enough. There's that, but even to prep people for it, the average person, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's important, uh, to do. So I do think that it's a very important experiment. Um, and maybe Polly Shore has to break into the damn thing, you know, and, 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 and shake it up a little bit to, to really know if it's going to work. But, uh, <clears throat> um, <laughs> some people will know about that, but go ahead. The yeah. questions that you don't know that you don't know. I mean, in this yeah. experiment, they could have learned so much about the earth. Actually, the people who are in the, the biosphere were saying they could see based on the data they were collecting, how mm-hmm. their individual actions really in real time impacted their environment. Yeah. Yeah. So I walk away from this again. I think it's very worthwhile. I think the data and I don't care how skewed or you could say, uh, 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 contaminated the data is that they collected based upon the fact that they, well, they got, you know, CO2 fed in or whatever. Um, I think there's worthwhile information to take from there. Even just on the farming practices, I think there's worthwhile information to take away from that. I am uh, bothered profoundly, actually, that that data is not accessible to anyone. Even the University of Arizona doesn't isn't touching it. And I'm bothered that nobody has tried to repeat this since then. Right. So, yes. 
And especially when, like I said, we have a story here. We don't have to read the whole thing. We can kind of just get into it a little bit here. Elon Musk is talking about in very short order, you know, going to Mars and making cities on Mars with pizza joints, the whole damn thing, you know, and at least a million people, he's going to do a hundred people a year. He's going to start schlepping up there and he's not bothering with any of these kinds of experiments, but it's supposed to be happening within his lifetime. I don't believe it. So the story that we've got, let me, let me just punch it up quick from science alert and, and anything that anything else, Ellen, you want to add in about the spaceship earth thing. I mean, as it melds in with this, these are conversations that, that coalesce. Uh, so actually this is originally from business insider. It's from November 4th, 2020. Here's the headline. Elon Musk's SpaceX now wants to impose its quote own legal regime regime end quote on Mars. Now, I think that that the legal thing is is its own story, and, and we're going to talk about that. But, I mean, when you read the story, link is in the show notes, folks, you're going to see just how quickly he's looking to make this happen. But he's not, like, if I were Elon Musk and I was going to start putting people on Mars in this quick a fashion, I would be begging for that data. You know, if there's anything left, and there's got to be something, you know, I would be begging for that data from the biosphere. I would be setting up other biospheres. Yeah, definitely. Set up test. Uh, you know, th- there should be test sites right. for these Mars colonies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, get people fucking ready, you know, because they're not coming back. I mean, Elon's been incredibly transparent about that part. Is that, guess what, folks, when you go to Mars, you're staying. Like, you you don't come back. You wow, know? really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, 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 he said that, like, the first... The first, however many, you know, hundreds or thousands of people, it's going to be a one-way trip. Um, so, or at least for a good chunk of those people, it'll be a one-way trip. Uh, so that, you know, that's important to keep in mind. Well, get those fucking people ready now. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and put them in the, I mean, you already have plenty of people today, a bunch of morons who think that, you know, Mars rovers are just driving around in Arizona anyway. Well, if you're going to keep <laughs> up the facade, just then fucking plant them there in a biosphere and, <laughs> you know, so it leads me to believe the fact that no one is wanting to do these experiments again, because it's a great idea. Okay. Unnecessary one. Unne- I would yes, think. I would agree. Uh, or that they're not requesting that data does call to, I mean, I get a little conspiratorial about this. I'm thinking like, well, wait, are you really planning on going to Mars? Exactly. Because so when you read this entire story about the, the legal regime, that Elon's trying, basically he's getting lawyers. He's trying to get it set up so that before they even do this earth or governments on earth are going to recognize Mars as an independent state. Now we know under president Clark, how well that didn't work. Uh, sorry, that's Babylon five reference. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a real world reference in this story. Um, uh, it it talks about Taiwan and how that hasn't been recognized by China and it doesn't even have a seat at the UN. An, another case where just because, you know, what one what one government says in a geographic area does not mean what another government believes in that geographic same geographic area. China and Taiwan are another example of what I was talking about earlier, where the occupying force does not have to be the government. Uh or the actual recognized government within an area. But it, besides what, yes, that it's a great corollary. Um, I mean, first off, like I'm insulted at basically these, these asshats, they just, they just, I mean, they're, they're, they're jonesing, they're getting hard ons for it. It's like, Ooh, give me laws right now. You know, when, and it's so funny because Elon is supposed to be some goddamn libertarian hero. 
And here he is just like begging for recognition from governments. It's like, well, that doesn't smack very libertarian to me, but whatever. Um, yeah. And, and he might argue that it's out of necessity because also discussed in this article, mm-hmm. um, you know, the government is responsible for any actions of U.S. citizens, Correct. ultimately. Right. So the U.S. government would be responsible for anything that happened on Mars, even if it is owned by SpaceX. Yeah. And what they go big into Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty that basically says you can't own anything outside of Earth. Um, and obviously he wants to, to fix that. I mean, frankly, I think that I don't know if he's going to get to Mars anytime soon. I think that, you know, normal everyday people going into space is going to become a commonplace in pretty short order. I don't know that Mars is the first part of that trip. Uh, I mean, I just think that he's trying to set up a legal framework to where he, he just gets to make an ass ton, ass ton of money off of this. Um, and that's really what he's pushing for here is that he's trying to recreate the, the, you know, he's trying to, to, to destroy the outer space treaty. And I mean, I don't like the outer space treaty more than anybody else, but it's not because I want to make money in space. I just don't like laws. Uh, but personally, I feel like that's what this is really about. And that's also why he's not really putting his money where his mouth is and building biospheres and getting that data. Um, because I mean, even like, and I, I said this before, cause he, he was on Joe Rogan. I don't know if you remember that. And he yeah. was smoking weed on mm-hmm. Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan. And I said, that's a stall tactic. Like he, he knows better than that. Like Elon's not, I mean, he's dumb, but he's not that dumb. And he did that because he knew that would force NASA to go into all of his factories and hold up his entire process because he's stalling. He wants the legal framework set up to where, uh, you know, to where he can, whatever, have whatever IP, you know, or, or so that he can be, I don't know, maybe he wants to be set up as God on Mars. Uh, you know, I don't know. What do you Possibly. Got? I mean, it, it also says in this article and take it for what you will, but, yeah. uh, supposedly, the people who live on Mars will be able to determine their own rules and set up their own government yeah. and deal with things however they see fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the ultimate goal. But who knows if that's really going to be what happens. Um, frankly, this whole Mars settlement thing is an experiment. And, um, you know, ultimately there's a corporation behind it. So it, it's it's just new territory. We don't know what's going to happen. But sure. I, I certainly wouldn't want to be one of the first, you know, 10,000 or million people who go to live on the Mars colony because, you know, some something could happen where there's like a disagreement between the, the Musk Corporation slash yeah. government and the U.S. government or, yeah. you know, all of Earth, maybe. Well, and again, things are guaranteed to go wrong because we're not even bothering to experiment here on what it would be like. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and even when we even when we have uh, 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 frameworks for uh, experiments that you could do like the biosphere, like, like biosphere two, which is mm-hmm. what it was called. Uh, so that you could try that. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm all about going to outer space, but I'm sure as fuck not going to live under any legal framework that Elon Musk is behind, you know, uh, not a chance, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll go up there under my own, uh, you know, individualistic, uh, well, I don't want to say power, but you know, under my own individualistic framework, but uh, I have no interest in, in playing ball with someone else's laws. Uh, I, I, I think that's ridiculous. And, and 
Yeah, they're like, not even there yet, and they're already trying to legislate this fucker. It just drives me nuts. What yeah. do you got? Yeah. No, it, you're you're right. And um, another thing that I feel trepidatious about is that if you were to go to Mars, you'd be putting your entire life in the hands of the engineering and you know the, whatever government system, whatever infrastructure set up there. Mm-hmm. And like, you really have to trust that what they did was right and everything is going to work smoothly because if anything goes wrong i mean if supplies are cut off if there's a leak somewhere you know people will die yeah i I, yeah and and that's and that's a great point because and it speaks to the biosphere thing again they are not solving the engineering issues first and that's so essential right they're bothering with the legal shit and it's just a waste of time you know, just, just, just do it. Yeah. It sounds like they're just starting the conversation. Uh, but yeah. Why are they starting this conversation, but not like we're going to rent out the biosphere for a year right. and, and see how people fare in there. Right. Cause you can do multiple things at once, but they're not, you know, like what is it? What, what was the pie fallacy? What was it called? Oh, the, the fixed pie fallacy. Right. This doesn't have to be a fixed pie. You can do engineering. And if you really give a shit about the legal stuff, which I don't think you should, but if you, if you think you need to, you know, you can do both. I mean, at the same time, but you're not, and you're really not. He's not. I mean, yeah. he, you could say he's building his spaceport or whatever. Uh, uh, he's working on Neuralink. And he's doing that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, here's a, like, just go land there. Just go. Just just go fucking land there. And what is what? What's the United States going to do? You know, you know, like, what are they going to send nukes? You There's know? the space Navy. I mean, how yeah, much right, the space are, force, yeah. Yeah, are, are they really invested in like chasing down someone to Mars? That's really far away. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I feel like all of this is so much stalling and it's not serious. And he's playing way too much ball with governments. And I mean, I could kind of believe that the space force was created right now. I mean, the dumbest thing, you know, if there was a, some kind of overarching government plan, not NWO, but like some kind of plan there, I would not have built the space force under Trump because that is always going to be a smear against it. Um, you know, that it was done under, under Trump. I would wait for the next guy, you know, that at least people moderately liked, uh, or at least, uh, the vocal people moderately liked or something. Uh, but I think they felt they had to rush the space force in because this may happen, but then the reason it's not happening right away, like Musk is saying, he's not doing all the experimentation and everything is because he's playing ball with them to let basically the U S military catch up with any plans for future colonization, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, is it going to happen? Is it going to happen in his lifetime? I, I mean, maybe you know, landing on Mars. And I don't think it's going to be a million person city in his lifetime. Um, but I feel like there's a lot of things going on here, but the areas that need to be taken seriously and worked on are not being worked on at all. And so I don't feel that this action that Musk is engaged in is in any way meant to be beneficial for the individual bottom line. Yeah. And if they really want to start a new Mars colony, they're going to have to create a new science. Right. They're going to have to do more of these biosphere experiments yeah. and really, you know, build up the infrastructure of knowledge that's needed in order to sustain people in that environment. Yeah. Yeah. And not be reliant on shipments from Earth. Yeah. And it's just, oh, 
Yes, absolutely. And and it's just so annoying, the idea that, yeah, we just want to make sure we're recognized by governments on, on Earth and everything. And it's like, yeah, I mean, astronauts themselves that have gone to the moon said, you know what? You look back and you see that ball. There's no countries. There's no, you know, there's none of that. So like flags mean nothing when you're out there. All It's all horseshit. They realize it when you get that galactic perspective that we always talk about on the show. Uh, and for him to want to pander at this stage is... Yeah, I mean, it must be about the money because mm-hmm. I, I wonder if he's trying to get this international uh, or national government recognition before he starts doing the research because he doesn't want to invest in the research and then, oh, we can't go. Right. But even if if some other corporation ended up doing this, the research would exist. Yeah. It would benefit humanity overall. Yeah. And if that's really what he's interested in, then fucking do it. <laughs> exactly. That's yes, that's exactly it. Just fucking do it. I mean, every time that people think he's doing something that is beneficial for everyone, it is all about his bottom line, not yours, his. Uh, for example, when he opened up the patents for the power systems, um, uh, for, you know, Tesla's and for the batteries and everything, when he opened up the patents for that, why did he do that? He didn't do that because he thinks open source is a good idea. He did that because he he doesn't have enough money to build the infrastructure to power and to recharge all of these cars. He wants so, other people to do it for him. Exactly. It has nothing to do with benefiting everybody. It has it, it is it was totally it was not because he had any kind of ethical inclination. It was completely about his bottom line. And 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 that's 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 the the biggest problem with this is that I feel like this is the same score where it is just is all about his bottom line. He is not, if he was coming from an ethical, uh, uh, for, you know, from some kind of ethical imperative or that he felt like, Oh, we got to get humanity to another planet right now. It does it at all costs, no matter what, which I appreciate that perspective that a lot of people have. It's like, look, we're, we're on a ticking time bomb, you know, here that, that if we're not a two planet species, we're fucked and it could be tomorrow, you know? And, he's not acting under those auspices. He's not acting under any kind of ethical imperative, whatever. He's just looking, okay, how do we make the most money on earth? And by basically exploiting Mars, which is ironic because he's talking all about Mars independence. Fuck him. <laughs> he's just fuck, fuck him, you know? And, and, and it's a shame that eight people, you know, 30 years ago had, had more balls and, and had more, more gusto, more moxie, more desire, more drive, more, more uh, ethical imperative, if I want to use that phrase, than this guy who has all the ability and money and already has the spaceships to do it. What a damn shame, you know, and that those people are some kind of laughing stock. Oh, media, rip Elon Musk to fucking shreds if you're going to do it to those eight people, you know, 30 years ago. This is outrageous. Yeah, and it's really a shame. Their legacy should not die. Not no. like that. No, they're far braver than this asshat. I mean, mind boggling to me, you know? Yeah, Uh, that was truly an experiment that could have benefited everyone in some way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and if people want to say, oh, but, you know, because I'm I'm waiting for the emails to come in. Questions at SovereignTech.com. I'm waiting for the emails. Oh, but those those Biospherians, they were a cult. They were this. Anybody, I mean, just go on Twitter and... I think you will see incredibly cultish aspects uh, towards Elon Musk. I mean, he gets treated like Jesus Christ, you know, and it's, it's insane. I mean, there's so many people like, oh yeah, he's, he's uh, you know, this great American. Oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. It's uh, nonsense. 
you know. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think one of the key aspects of a cult is, you know, not just having a charismatic leader, but one mm-hmm. that the followers follow. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they do what he commands. Yeah. And, well, and like, it, of course, people were doing what John asked them to do, but they they were also coming up with their own ideas and contributing. Yes. Right. Right. And and yeah, like his idea, his the space thing wasn't his idea. That was one of like his people mm-hmm. or, or not. I don't want to say his people, but um, yeah. But I mean, Elon Musk, I mean, if you won't join his cult, he's got a chip to go in your head to make sure you do, you know, uh, like. <laughs> Neuralink. I don't even get how Neuralink fits into this picture of going to Mars. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're going to take a hundred people a year, you might as well chip them as they walk through the door. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's how the government's going to be run is, you know, uh, supercomputer. Yeah. You can kind. choose any government you want as long as the chip is all right with it. I, I, ah, fucking a, <laughs> he, he is a walking dystopia. And people don't get it. Like they don't see it. And it blows my mind that they don't see it, but whatever. Anyway, we could keep talking about that. There are plenty of people that still think electric cars are a good idea. He is a walking dystopia. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yeah. So uh, would you like to go into a biosphere? It depends, I think. <laughs> uh, biosphere one is Earth. And yes, I, I like. I, I love. love that. I love Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it depends. What what biosphere are you talking about? Are you asking about biosphere two or Silent Running? Uh, biosphere Sovereign. I don't know. Like just a little. I don't know. <laughs> you want to go build a biosphere? Just, just a little about. geodesic dome. Yeah, we'll some just rabbits go, hey, yeah, and a There's little already orchard. some of those in New Hampshire anyway. I don't know, but hey, boy, <laughs> I don't want to go down there. Uh, those conversations, but um, well, if it was me and you and and some nice little animals, yeah, some berry bushes, yeah, it'd be really nice. Yeah, maybe a little geodesic dome in space, like in Silent Running. We should talk about that. Yeah. When we come back with a little more sovereign tech. Woo. Hey, baby, I know, I know, you are tired of Gmail. You have had enough. Well, I have a solution for you. What I want you to do is you go to FastMail, okay? It's fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That's the URL you can use. You're going to get a discount with that. You are going to love this. This is email for email's sake. This company does nothing more. Just email and they do it right. All the latest security technologies you want to log into your account with your YubiKey, you can do that. FastMail has your hookup. Very inexpensive plans. I want you to check it out. You go to fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That'll get you the hookup. And it's an honor to have them as a part of Sovereign Tech. Woo! Let's get back to the show. The Golden Stallion doing whatever he wants to do. The Climax. It is time for the climax where I get to talk about whatever I want to talk about. But of course, I'm not alone. I'm being joined by none other than the absolutely brilliant. And folks, if you didn't realize it by now, do you have ears to hear? Uh, But by the brilliant Ellen Sovereign. And, uh, you know, perhaps if you had eyes to see something you should see is silent running. Um, (laughs) So we're going to talk about this movie that we recently watched. 
Uh, it actually just came out on Blu-ray. It was a re-release by Arrow Films. I'm sure it was on Blu-ray beforehand, but Arrow Films do do these great like 2K and 4K rest. Well, I might have an issue with 4K, but you can listen back to episodes of Sovereign Tech to find out about that, where I ripped that technology to shreds. Regardless, they do great 1080p, shall we say, uh, restorations of you know, films that other people would ignore, but they do it, you know, they produce them on limited scales. So it's viable for them to, you know, to make money off of putting together these tremendous packages with, uh, uh, lots of, you know, audio commentaries and making specials and all this other stuff. They really, really do great work, uh, in the home video space, shall we say. And so I think it was November 17th, they released silent running, um, we've watched actually you and I, Ellen, we've watched a lot of their releases. In fact, I made you wait to watch the last Starfighter, even though I already had it on Blu-ray. I wanted the, the arrow films came out with a new version earlier in 2020. And I said, Oh no, 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 no. We're going to, we're going to watch this as best as possible. And wow, did they do great work with the last Starfighter? Let me ask you this before, before we get into silent running a couple things. What did you think of the last Starfighter I, out of 10? You know, ten, 10 being the greatest, you know, 10 being. Oh, uh, you always ask me this. Uh, well, <laughs> 10 being Cleopatra and one yeah. being the room. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, careful. Someone's going to give you shit for that. That's one. my skill. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, The last Starfighter was really fun. And yes. uh, I appreciated the, the space adventure for what it was. Yeah. Um, I, I think I gave that an eight. Yeah. Oh, I think it's worthy of an eight. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was so much fun. Yeah. That's a movie, even though, you know, it, it, it was uh, revolutionary in its use of CGI, not the first, but revolutionary in its use of CGI. Um, amazingly as rough as that CGI may look today. I think the movie plays just as well today as it did back in 83. I uh, thought it was charming. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. I, I think there's, there's so much great stuff in it. Um, so I would at least match your eight out of 10, uh, for that one. Uh, but totally worth, I, I feel like it's just one of those must see films because it is a, it is a genuinely revolutionary film. Um, we would not have, if you like any movie today that has CGI, you wouldn't have it if it wasn't for the last starfighter. Or yeah, at least, you said after that movie, they didn't do CGI again for a few years, right? It was a long time before, I mean, basically you went between that and Jurassic Park. You had a span of like a decade where people really didn't take CGI seriously. And, and it's, it's weird that nobody came running to, uh, to the company that did the CGI for, I think it was digital productions or whatever that did the CGI for, for last Starfighter, um, because they should have, because they should, they should have been blown away. Uh, most people don't know that company did a back in like. 78, they did a demo for George Lucas with X-Wings in CGI. And Dennis Murin, special effects genius that he was, was blown away when he saw it. And it was just wildly ahead of its time. No one's ever going to be able, like, I can't as a model maker or whatever else, I can't, or he wasn't a model maker, but as a special effects guy, I can't do this. Only CGI can do that. Um, Yeah, it just, it took forever for CGI to get taken seriously, but this movie really stands tall as like, they, they went all in on it, you know, and took the shot and it won. Um, but, you know, uh, before then models were order of the day and the master of models, uh, especially before Star Wars was Douglas Trumbull and silent running is a, I mean, people would argue it's an environmental film. 
Uh, in fact, if there was something to be called ecological entertainment, I think this would actually fit the bill. Maybe not Biosphere 2, but this would. Um, but it was made by Douglas Trumbull. I mean, all the way around. Uh, he was he was involved with it. Obviously did a lot of work with special effects. He, I mean, this is the guy who did, who made special effects look real in space in 2001 A Space Odyssey. So, you know, he had all the reputation and skill that he needed. Underneath him was John Dykstra, who John Dykstra was one of the pivotal guys who did get Star Wars on the screen in 77 uh, as a special effects artist. Um, I mean, he basically taught Dennis Muren a thing or two. Um, So when this film, you know, gets cleaned up and put into, you know, whatever, 1080p and everything, I mean, largely... I felt like the effects held up. It looked pretty good. On, I thought on the models end. looked so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can kind of tell that they're models, but they're so cool. Yeah. They look great. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the, the model for the Valley Forge, which is the main ship that the main character played by Bruce Dern, who the character's name is Freeman Lowell. Um, again, this movie is from 72. Uh, that model for that spaceship would actually get reused in the original Battlestar Galactica uh, because it was just such an great shot and such a great like idea and design that they, they they included it there. Um, so this is a, I guess we'll get into, this is a movie that is all about like trying to say like the earth has just been fucked. There's basically no vegetation left on earth. Yeah. And if you read the, the novelization of it, you find out that it's like 75 degrees Celsius. Yeah, they say it's 75 degrees everywhere on Earth. And I thought, like, oh, that's Fahrenheit. They've got mm-hmm. climate control across the entire thing. So it's, right. like, perfect California weather every day. Yeah. But 75 degrees Celsius, that's all. That's close to boiling. Yes. And so there's no plant life on Earth. Um, and so it's been preserved in outer space by varying corporations from Dow to Coca-Cola to, I mean, and they, they like, they put it in your face that the corporations are behind everything. Uh, and not in a good way. Yeah. Um, and the model that we're talking about, the spaceship, the Valley Forge, mm-hmm. it's got these giant geodesic domes of environments. But the, there's like five or six of them and they're all attached to the central shaft. And that's the ship. Right. Right. And that's like if you can envision that, then you can kind of imagine what the model looked like. Like you can see into the domes and see whatever environment they've got inside there. Yeah. Um this so there's four guys because there's multiple ships out in space with these domes on them. Um, there's four guys who seem to be in charge of each ship, and then each ship has at least three drones or what are basically droids, androids. Um, again, this is pre Star Wars, folks. Keep that in mind. Uh, but I think George Lucas took a whole lot from this movie, uh, because like the look of R2D2 matches these drones. Uh, in fact, they each have a name, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, uh, it matches them perfectly. And the amazing thing is though, while George Lucas did use like Kenny Baker, he did use, uh, you know, little people to, to be inside of his, his droids, or, you know, in the case of, uh, C-3PO, it's, you know, Anthony Daniels. Um, when you look at these drones, like the whole time you're watching the movie, you and I were watching the movie. We were like, yeah, there's something weird about it. Yeah, there's like, very eerie. Like it's, it looks pneumatic. The but way that then, they're moving. Yeah, yeah. But then maybe it's also kind of slightly human, but you can't really like no human would fit into these. No, right. They're, they're like, small, like R2D2 right. and they're bipedal. Whereas where R2D2 is like kind of a tripod technically, and he can roll around. These don't have wheels. They're walking around and you're like, wait, how is this possible? And in the whole, like half the movie, we're like, how, 
how did they do that? You know, like, yeah, what does this affect? And you finally looked it up because I was like, I think it's pneumatics, maybe. And you're like, maybe, maybe. But you found out that they're actually amputees. Yeah, like they're people amputees. who have no legs. Right. And so they're walking around with their hands. And that's what they got. And they got they got like four or five of them to play these three roles. And that's why it looks so eerie, because it is a human in there that's doing this movement. It's an amazing effect, though. Yes. Uh, I don't know if they'd be allowed to do it today. I can't say why not, really. I mean, I think it's, uh, I mean, because, and they, like, Doug Trumbull's a good guy. They, they, as soon as the movie ends, they tell you, you know, they, they say, you know, thanks and starring uh, the amputees, they list off all the amputees names because they want you to know, like, I mean, they're really giving them a place of honor. Sure. So I thought they did it in a very respectful way, but it is an incredible visual effect. Uh, it that just really blows is. your mind when you see it. Yeah. It's a real standout for the film is the, are the, the drones. Um, and the, I think they're meant to kind of be a standout. Um, and there's more that's interesting about those, but we can talk about that later. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, so basically, I mean, the overall story goes is that uh, uh, Freeman Lowell, he's like the only guy that seems to care about these plants and he's taking care of them and everything. He's the caretaker of the garden, right. essentially. Right. Um, he, I, I don't want to rehash the whole movie because that'll take too much time, but just quickly, he's, yeah, he's the caretaker of these forests and everything. And the order comes from Earth. Hey, guess what? We're giving up on this project. So just fucking nuke the forest. Like we, we don't need plants anymore. Yeah. The, the companies aren't going to shell out right. money to keep this project going. And anymore. understand these are the last plants of earth <laughs> anywhere on earth or anywhere. And in, in the solar system, I mean, this is it. But and they don't need them. They've got but we don't synthetic need them. Just food. Nuke, nuke them. Let's, let's get back home. Yeah. Uh, and so he has, I mean, Freeman Lowell has these moments where he's making these ecological arguments and everything, you know, and again, we're talking 1972 folks. Um, of it's course it's taking corny. place in the future. Uh, yeah. Bruce Dern's acting. The, the funny thing with this movie is you don't know to like the guy, like he's supposed to be the hero, but he's, he's kind of not. And he's, I don't want to call him an anti-hero either. Um, he has to make some tough decisions. Well, I mean, he starts, well, let's just say he just, he starts killing people. Well, uh, they're blowing up the domes. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and he's like, you're not, I'm not going to let you destroy these forests. And he saves the last dome. Yes. One final dome. He has to, in order to save it, he has to murder one guy. Right. Um, the others, actually, they also get murdered, but they get blown up mm -hmm. with the rest of the domes. Yeah. Um. But no, he, he like physically strangles one of the guys to save the forest. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like this movie has an ecological message and it ends basically with, I mean, we'll just say it. Freeman Lowell kills himself after everything that he did, but he launches this, the last dome into the stars and he leaves one of the drones to take care of it for, I guess, into eternity or, you know, for however long. Right. Uh, but he blows up the rest of the Valley Forge with him in it. And he, you know, he, I guess before he has to face a court martial or whatever. Well, but, yeah, if he was captured, they would have found out. Everything yeah, and he'd, he'd have done. to atone for his sins, as it were. Um, I mean, this is there's a lot going on in this film. It's a very I think it's a very deep film. I think there are a lot of there's a lot of commentary like the other shipmates that are originally alive seem to need the others to do very minuscule things that like, there's no reason they can't do too, but it's like, it's almost like a commentary that humanity has become lazy. 
very lazy and right. they don't care about anything. Like right. they've got a robot to set up their pool. They're, yeah. The, the billiard table. And it's just this little round billiard table. It's not even a full size billiard table that you have to walk around. Uh, it's very, very weird. Yeah. 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 Uh, and that's one of the things that Lowell says to them is mm-hmm. like, this is the problem on earth is that nobody cares anymore. Right. Right. Uh, and so I don't like, there's a lot of messages here, a lot of deep stuff in it. And I feel like I, it's another, it's kind of like Zardoz where I feel like I need to watch it a couple more times to really, really grok what's, 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 in, what's being laid down. Um, but I don't think it really wins. I don't think it really sticks the landing, I guess, at saying we need to save the trees, you know? Um, I don't, I don't, what do you think? You you think it hits it? You think it it does the job? You know, you can say that the acting was rough, but I I think it's just that beginning scene where he's telling off his shipmates that is like, "Eh, maybe he's not the right guy to do this. And comes off psychotic, but well, he, he is partially psychotic, but that's, that's when it gets really good is Mm -hmm. when you see him go kind of psycho and murder the guy. Mm -hmm. Like I actually, as much as I do not condone violence or murder in any way, I mm-hmm. think that that makes the movie so much more intense. Like it takes it to the next level because this guy is willing to murder to protect the forest. That's how much he loves what he's doing. And like how how deeply seated that that desire is to sustain life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like I, I think the rest of the movie is really sweet. Like he ends up taking care of the robots and treating them like his friends. Right. Um, yeah. There's some interesting commentary around that too. Like they, they actually seem to have feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're sad when one of them dies, when right. one of the other drones dies, like they have feelings about it, uh, which is kind of weird. Um, yeah. I, there's no good guy in this movie. That's a human anyway. Um, I, I and I wonder if that's, Part of the underlying message that maybe Doug Trumbull was trying to tell is that humans just flat out are the problem. And even the one that you think is like the best and that would take care of things actually ends up becoming complacent and is as much of a problem as his, as his counterparts. Well, he, in the end did a very heroic thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just that, that he used some tragic strategies to achieve it. Yeah, I mean, he did save the forest. He saved the trees. That's that's for sure. Uh, yeah, he he ensured that they would be sustained forever. Yeah, I mean, this is not a feel good movie. Like, yeah, no, by by no means. Total antithesis to Last Starfighter. In fact, I think I said to you, okay, we're going to watch Last Starfighter tonight because I I just got to get the taste out of my mouth of of silent running. You know. I don't know. I, I feel like you interpreted this movie very differently than I did. Like, I didn't see it as like, yes, it was a dystopian film. It mm-hmm. was meant to be a, a cautionary tale, but I thought it was great. You know, there were some moments in it that were really beautiful. And I think that's yes. what made me like it was that humans do have this capacity to really care for mm-hmm. the life which sustains them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like the movie. I like the movie a lot for a bunch of reasons. Uh, I mean, even the simplest reason that it's a serious science fiction film tackling serious subjects pre 1977, which you don't, I mean, you have some, you know, but like you have silent running Logan's run. I mean, you know, Planet of the apes soil I mean, and green. Well, there is soil. I mean, well, 
the work of Chuck Heston stands on its own, but uh, <laughs> greatest actor ever. But um, I, I like it a lot. I'm just saying that, that I mean, it, it's a film that is trying to say a lot. I don't think you can really get it in one watch. But then admittedly, I also don't know if it's compelling enough to like Zardoz. It's compelling enough to watch over to watch again because it's so damned weird. You know, as to where this isn't weird and it's not meant to be weird because I think Doug Trumbull wanted you to relate to everything that's going on. He mm-hmm. wants you to see the Coca-Cola signs. He wants you to see like the stupid pool table. He wants you to see all this stuff. Um, I just, I don't know if it's compelling enough to watch over and over again to pick up everything that Doug was putting down. Why not? I, I feel like it is. I think there are some really genuinely beautiful things. I mean, like even when it, it it's close to the end of the movie, he is racing towards the garden mm-hmm. in this quad type vehicle. Yeah. And he hits, uh, I don't know if it was Huey or Dewey or Louie, mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, he damages him and he's, he has to perform surgery. Right. And the other drone is there in the room with him. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really touching. Like they care about each other so much. Uh, and I, I just think that like this movie is really putting on showcase like how one person who cares can really do all these good things, even in tragic circumstances. Uh, and and maybe there are parts that are kind of slow, mm-hmm. uh, but still you get what's going on in the movie, like in the larger context, like he's flying around Saturn and going through Saturn's rings and hoping that the ship gets lost so that he doesn't get caught by uh, whoever search party is out looking for him. Yeah. 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 And he's really planning on living there for the rest of his life and taking care of these drones and the forest. Yeah. But when it happens, he like, he becomes, he starts eating the shitty food instead of the fruit of the trees. Uh, like he, you know, he does, he forgets because like the forest starts dying mm-hmm. and it's because he stopped tending it you know well no it it started dying because he was moving farther away from the sun yes but he didn't even like notice that it happened right and but part of that i think is commenting on um this phenomena that i think a lot of sci-fi authors postulated would happen to humans when they go out into space by themselves for long periods of time and that Mm -hmm. is like going space happy yeah essentially like losing your mind being completely lonely and depressed because you're out in space alone. And that's kind of why he turns to these drones for friendship. He like teaches them to play cards with him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he does wake up to what he's been doing. Uh, so, so I think uh, that's just a period of transition for him. Yeah. I, I guess I could see where there's an opening. Not that there's ever going to be a silent running to actually, I shouldn't say that Hollywood seems to be willing to make any fucking sequel today. So maybe there would be, uh, <laughs> but it wouldn't have the same like environmental message. There wouldn't be the same, like really sweet core of humanity there. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, like I'm compelled to read the novel um, because that was written after like kind of after the fact. And I'm like, I, there's, I know there's a lot being said in that movie. I, I, I can see it that like, no, that meant something that means something. And it is a very smart film. Um, and I could see where, you know, frankly, there could be a sequel to where, you know, okay. Humanity might have grown up 
And whew, good thing they found Huey with that forest just floating out in the solar system. Um, maybe. Yeah, maybe they were able to catch up to it and bring it back. Yeah, maybe something like that. And I don't need a happy ending. That's fine. Like, I, I'm okay with it not having a, necessarily a happy ending. Yeah, even if, like, the quote-unquote hero of the story blows himself mm-hmm. up. Yeah, yeah. I guess I just feel like, like, there. I don't want to say there's something missing from it, because I love Doug Trumbull's work. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. What, what do you, what do you give? Well, I, all right, wait, before we go, before we go to rankings, um, a, I can really see where this movie was inspirational to the biospherians with biosphere two. Like I totally get it. Like, I think they use this as a roadmap, uh, you know, in, in a very real way. And with, with that in mind, clearly it's an inspiring film like you were talking about. Like, obviously you're not the only one that picked it up like that because they did. They even mention it in the documentary, you know, um, which I thought was again, some funny synchronicity because we had just watched that movie like the week previous. Yeah. It was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll move on from that. Uh, can I, can I ask please. you a question? Yeah, please. Do you feel like there's something missing in this movie because there is no sex? Well, I'll tell you, I'd like the movie and look, the movie doesn't have to be what I want it to be, you know, for it to be great. Um, I would have liked it if it ended off as kind of an Adam and Eve story, you know? And, and so that way there, yeah, that there, there, there could have been, uh, uh, you know, like a female character on board and her and Freeman, you know, could, could float out in space forever in their little forest. Um, I wouldn't have minded that, but. No, it's okay that it doesn't have sex. 2001 doesn't have sex either. And I think that, you know, the movie's great. Nor does 2010. And I think actually that movie's not just great. That movie's fucking amazing. So what is it missing that you feel like it would have been better if it had included? I just feel like some of its messages, like it needs, it needs to be a little more surface level. Like there, there needed to be a little bit of a stronger statement. And I think the movie looks so good that people would have went for it if Doug made the stronger statement. I think he's making it. You just can't see it right away. And even I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, so that, 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 that's, what's going on for me with it. Uh, the other thing, the other negative for this film that dates it, even though it's kind of cute, uh, the music. So (laughs) yeah, that's interesting too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, uh, I think it was Peter Schickel who, who did the, you know, the, the symphony, but then out of nowhere, Joan Boaz is singing, you know, and that, that just firmly plants it in hippie territory, you know, like this is space hippies, like, like just straight up as soon as she starts singing. And I don't say that derogatorily, like at all. I'm just saying not, not the space hippie part, but it throws the movie out like, or it it doesn't throw it out. It throws it off. Like it suddenly it's so anti, uh, it's so anachronistic to the rest of the film. What I do you suppose got? so. I mean, not that I really know who Joan Boaz is mm-hmm. or any of her other work, but I do know that in this movie, there's a lot of like gray steel and spaceship kind of environment. There's really no feminine presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suddenly there's this woman singing with a beautiful voice about gathering your children by your side. Yeah. And that does seem a little out of place. Like that's what would happen in a sort of Eden mm-hmm. uh, setting, but that's not exactly what's going on in the movie. 
Yeah, but I do think that was a very conscious choice to use her. Uh, and I might be saying her name wrong. I mean, I've heard people talk about her. I've read her name a million times. I know what she's about. I've heard her music before, even if I've never exactly heard her name. But uh, I mean, she was she was a superstar at this time. Um, I think that there there is a message in that decision of using not just like a hippie singer, but using a female singer and having that be the only female presence in the whole film is that, is that ethereal singing voice. There's some kind of message there. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but there's some kind of message there. Um, but it, it does, it still, I feel like it throws the movie way off. Uh, like it, it just, it feels completely out of place, uh, you know, in, in, in the film. Yeah. It's, it's almost like that's what, uh, he's trying to preserve at least the that spirit. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's not there, mm-hmm. that's like what the ultimate goal is. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, I think it's a, like the opening is super clever. The op- the opening credits, it looks like you're on earth and you're just seeing all this plant life and animal life and everything. And then, Oh no, we're on a space state or, you know, we're, we're in a spaceship. What happened? You know, I mean that like, that's a brilliant opening uh, to do that and, and brilliant design because I mean, there's never a point in the film where you don't believe that what you're seeing would work like that. What you're seeing makes sense. Like the, the dome, the whole, every, all the design about it just, just seems to, to really flow and make sense. Um, so I, I give it a lot of credit there, but again, there's just those little things that come in where it just doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't yeah, click. I mean, there are a few things like what's the power source. How is this mm. able to keep going forever? You know, the, yeah. the lights that he sets up in, in the, the sunlights. Yeah. yeah. But uh, they don't really address it. And it's better that they don't try to give a half-assed explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, they just leave it to your imagination and yeah. that's fine. Yeah. That's yeah. acceptable. I mean, it didn't make me believe it any less. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you thought was like a powerful message or powerful point in the film? Anything to do with the drones, anything? I, I mean, we touched on it all. I don't want to go into it too much deeper. Like you said, because it would take up a, a lot more time. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, you know, I think we kind of touched on all the major points. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. Like I, there's something to do with, like the relationship between man and machine and nature, uh, that that's in there too. Again, there's a lot of interesting, I know there's great ideas being laid out in here. Yeah. I think after we watched this movie, I said to you, like nature makes man, yeah. man makes machine. Machines take man to space. Man dies. Machine takes care of nature. Yeah. The, yeah. There's, it's, there's, it's like it's, evolution has gone full circle and now machines are taking care of nature. Yeah. I don't know if like Doug Trumbull was crazy about that poem all watched over by machines of loving grace. Like, I don't know if like he was somehow commenting on that. I just, I know, again, I know there's something there. And so I really like it because I, I recognize how bold the film is, uh, even though there, it just needs more uh, or not. It does. it. I need to give it more. This is what I'm saying. Not that it needs to have more, uh, but it was not a really successful film. Um, I mean, Doug Trumbull, basically, after he made it, would go back to doing special effects uh, up until I think it was like Brainstorm or something or that he made in the 80s. Uh, and he'd do a great job with special effects and would, would make some pretty amazing films as, as, as far as that goes. Uh, but I mean, so what do you, what do you give this, you know, what do you give this film out of 10? I 
really like this film. Yeah. And a lot of the critiques that you have about it, I, I think I, I, I would give it an eight. You overlook them and you give it an eight. It's not that I overlook them. You I've disagree. addressed them. I disagree. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Fair. I feel very differently about it than you do. Okay. No, that's fair. That's fair. No, uh, I, I really like it. I mean, to me, it's, it's high up there because it's hard science fiction. Yep. And it's, even though it's dystopia, it still puts on display like some really integral parts of nature and humanity that mm-hmm. I, I I just love it. Okay, eight out of ten from Ellen. I'm, yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna give it a seven, but I'll tell you, I, I'm I'll option it. I've never done this before. I'll option it for like a nine because wow. because option I option it. What well, does yeah, that mean? because I think that there's the chance. That like, if I, especially after I read the book or whatever, once I get what it's trying to say, because again, I can just smell it, that there's, there's stuff there happening underneath. Once I get that, I could see myself like just, just really being like really passionate about this film. Yeah. Like if, if there was this underlying message of like nature overall as an intelligence will find a way to take care of itself and ensure mm-hmm. its survival, even beyond man. Like, I think that would be a really powerful message. Yeah. Like if there's some kind of, Oh, see that could get, I could pick some, some idea that, you know, like the universe is like, or the galaxy is like biosphere zero. And Uh, yeah but like if nature formed a greater intelligence you know what i mean like overall these many individual beings form a greater being yeah 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 knows how it can in the long term ensure its survival something like that so so cool yeah 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 absolutely maybe if there's a few tardigrades on there (laughs) (laughs) yeah All right. Well, anyway, so that's what I've got. I'm going to give it a seven, but I'm open to it actually being a lot better once I kind of, once I get it, once I get more of it, understand what it's trying to say. So yeah, there we go. Um, okay. So, you know, I want to, I want to end this off. We, we need to wrap this up. We're, we're going to two and a half hours, which is not unheard of when you're on the show, Ellen, because we <laughs> no. have so much to talk about. Can you imagine what it's like it. living with us? Holy shit. <laughs> Gosh, we're like constantly engaged with each other. <laughs> I mean, the level of the ideas. No, anyway. Uh, yeah. So we finished watching Babylon five. We did. Now we don't have to, we don't, I don't want to necessarily get into a whole ton of spoiler territory. We don't have to spend a whole ton of time on this. Time is an infinite circle. Big stuff. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, did, do you think, did I oversell Babylon five? <laughs> like did, did, did I, did I, did I put it on too high a pedestal in your opinion? <laughs> the way that you're looking at me when you ask this question is uh-huh. like, you already know what I'm going to say. <laughs> I bawled like a baby. In the last episode? In the last episode. Yeah, yeah. And you told me I would. Yeah. So, no, I don't think you oversold Woo! <laughs> I think you were absolutely right. Where where I said with hesitancy and almost regret that it is the best show ever made previously uh, when I was on Sovereign Tech, yeah. I, I now, I cannot deny, I have to say with absolute certainty, it is the greatest show ever made. <laughs> 
Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And you had to watch all of it in order for the ending to be so powerful. Yeah. But. God, I, I cried so much. I oh, even I, like I, pulled the box of tissues over. Yeah. So oh, and I've seen that I've seen that ending so many times. I still cry. I like I I can't I cannot help it. I listened to the commentary track on the DVD. This is why it's beautiful to have discs. I listen to the commentary track, and Straczynski is choking up while he made the fucking thing. And he's <laughs> choking up, especially during that last episode. And but to get that kind of feeling. You have to go on a five-year journey, but you've got to go on that journey. And unfortunately, people, especially today, are just too goddamned impatient. And they're not willing to go through perhaps, I mean, would you say there's any any aspect of it that was boring? Uh, no. Of the, the whole series. No, the whole no, series. no. I mean, there are some episodes that are kind of outliers that don't play into the larger storyline. But I think... Like the the vast majority of them do. And even for those episodes, there's still so many compelling characters and interesting things that happen. And it's just it's so imaginative and so beautiful and smart. And I mean, it it's it's like if all of the exciting and interesting and dramatic moments in life were condensed. Mm-hmm. That's what the show is, yeah. except it's on a galactic scale right but you've got to you you have to spend five years with these characters to get that amazing climax yeah and oh my gosh it's just it's so hard to even comprehend it because it's like the ending of this era and the you know a new one is beginning but it's like so hard to move on yeah (laughs) because things that happened are just so incredible yeah i mean we watched we watched crusade we watched everything uh and and crusade could have gone places huh i mean would you like to see the show continue i guess yeah it could have gone places yeah i never really liked it I mean, not as much as Babylon 5. Yeah, I mean, it only had like 11 episodes. If it wasn't tied in with that series, Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't be interested in it that much. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I mean, but we, you know, again, we did watch the movies uh, Lost Tales. Didn't you think that was, I thought that was dynamite, Lost Tales. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like those little stories and like talk about dealing with explanations about things in Torah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was great. And I mean, like, that's the thing. But you have to spend the time with the characters, like even Legend of the Rangers, which was kind of hokey, especially that scene when she's um, uh, shooting the, the ship's weapons oh from within gosh. a three. <laughs> like, what the fuck was that? That was probably the worst scene from a movie I've ever seen because they were trying so, so hard to make it look awesome and badass. She and gave cool. it everything she could. And it was too much. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It just looked clownish. Would you say that's the worst moment in Babylon 5 history? Probably. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. It, it, if not the worst, then it's very close to the worst. Yeah. But at the same time, so as, as ridiculous as that little, and you got to watch Legend of the Rangers to understand it just, it's stupid. The movie, the movie overall is okay, you know, but like that scene is really stupid. I mean, they could have made that concept cool. Like there's you a know, way. It, yeah. You, when you're inside this like floating chamber and your movements correspond, right? To you're doing these karate the moves and it's yeah. firing lasers, right? Yeah. But at the, my point in bringing up Legend of the Rangers is even that, as kind of ridiculous as some of that is, because you spent so much time with the characters. When Jakar shows up, 
Did you did you like stop breathing for a second? <laughs> well, you feel like the gravity has just been turned up. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, like as soon as you see Jakar, you're just like, you know, like I, I yeah, mean, you, like, you, you deeply gotta, inhale. Yes. You're just waiting on the edge of your seat to see what happens next. Because exactly. everything that comes out of his mouth is like holy. <laughs> right. <laughs> see, what other show are you going to get where that happens? I mean, like, that's mind boggling for, for, for that to occur in something, you know? Uh, I mean, Luke Skywalker doesn't even have that kind of cachet and it's been burned up anyway by Ruin John. I mean, Ryan Johnson. Uh, you, you know, it, it's it's incredible. And I'm glad I, I'm I, I, I'm so glad that I've, I feel vindicated. And it was it was one of the grandest pleasures I've ever experienced in my life to share this with you. Um, Thank you. In fact, you are. I've only had one other person in my life, uh, and it was my friend in high school that I got to share that experience of going through Babylon Five with. You are the you. So you are one of two people. It's basically Spock and you. And that's, that was his nickname in high school anyway. Uh, and, and, and it was awesome to go through it with you and, and, and especially, you You're know, still hanging out with Vulcans all this time. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, Talana. Uh, <laughs> um, sorry. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. Like, and, and it is an experience folks. Would you say the same? Yes, uh, absolutely. An emotional roller coaster. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, mm -hmm. most people will watch a TV series and say, oh, it's an emotional roller coaster. But I'm not most people and I don't watch most. Uh, I, I mean, I've seen television series, but the attachment that I formed to these characters, it was so real. Yeah. Like I was defending Delenn like she was my mother. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, like when when Captain Lockley came in, I was like, "No, she's disagreeing with Delenn. She needs to go." Yeah, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> these people—I uh, mean, the characters—not all of them are human, but they—they are, are so beautiful, and you can't help but love them. Yeah, Sheridan's awesome. Yeah, Man. I mean, even even like Londo, he has oh. his flaws, but you still you like him. Yeah, yeah, even though he. Well, we don't want to give too much away, but yeah, you still like them. Bottom line. Uh, yeah. Amazing. There, there's just, and, and we have many shows and movies left to watch, but I can guarantee you, and I'm sure a year from now, two years from now, you'll probably say the same. Nothing matches that. I mean, just, just nothing comes close. Just the depth of emotional exploration that they mm -hmm. go through in the show is unmatched. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go, folks. <laughs> the greatest show in television history. Yes. Uh, I, I just, I wanted to get that report in. I know we're going long, but I wanted to get the report in that. Yes. Brian Sovereign's not insane. This thing is Babylon five is amazing. Uh, and, and just to hear, hear your passion was, was wonderful. Uh, that, I mean, I don't need to be proven right. I just love getting to hear someone else uh, talk about, you know, talk about something, you know, art so passionately. It was uh, so great to share it with you. Thank you. Yeah, thank it you, was love. really beautiful yeah. to watch together. Yeah, it was. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Greatest show ever made. Um, and you got a couple other things to check out uh, that we mentioned throughout the episode. Hell, there's a lot of things you get to walk away from this episode. Uh, and all kind of interrelated. Yeah. Silent Running and, and Spaceship Earth and even the books that we talked about earlier. Uh, I mean, they all kind of fit together and create a certain picture or at least some possibilities. 
<laughs> Imagine what our life is like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a what what a what a yes, what an amazing life. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> anyway, I think we have uh some other things to get to in our life. Um and I say it with a smile. So <laughs> <laughs> I think we've enriched people's lives enough for one night. Fair enough. Uh so we will <laughs> we'll we'll wrap this one up. Uh, more Sovereign Tech to come, of course, and so much more in the Sovereign Tech feed. I'm honored that so many people enjoy all of these special episodes that I put out as well. Uh, go to SovereignTech.com to get more. And actually, there's a, uh, I did a whole write-up on, if you want to go watch Babylon 5, I did a whole write-up there on what order to watch the entire show, all the movies, everything. Uh, so I did the homework for you and it's the same order that Ellen and I watched it. Yeah, and we watched so, it in that order. Yeah, exactly. So go, you, you can check that out there. If you don't know where to start, Golden Stallion's got your hookup. So we will end this episode. Ellen is always an absolute pleasure to have you on. <laughs> Thank and, you for having me on. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. And uh, uh, well, anyway, we'll be back with more Sovereign Tech soon. We'll see all of you woo, on the other side. Thank you for listening to Sovereign Tech, an Osiris One production. Now go out there and make some trouble. No zoonoids were harmed in the making of this podcast.